people have always asked me, if you could just take back one thing, Greg, in your whole life, if you could just take one thing back, what would you take back? And I, I would have to say moving into that house. Put that coffee down. That's a clown question, bro. Here we go, another episode of Off Script with Lance Zerline, Eric Layden. Lance, I might have had too much coffee today. I am all sorts of fired up for this one. Are you jacked? You I'm should jacked. be jacked. Yeah, you should be. a 48-ounce press of pure Papua New Guinea single-origin beans. I am going to drink all 48 ounces of it during this podcast. It, no telling what's going to happen. Um, I... You know, you put me on about three weeks ago, a show called Outcry on Showtime. I mm-hmm. finally got around to it. Uh, I know you're a documentary uh, buff, aficionado, lover. Um, and so I, I watched it. Um, I did not know the story remarkably uh, because I'm usually all over these kind of things. And it was I'm so glad I didn't know the story because it it was such a better experience for me not knowing the story. and. I, I watched it in two days. I called you. I said, this is incredible. You told me you have a way to get these two guys on the show, Pat and Greg. And I said, name it. I'm there. I'll bring 48 ounces of Joe and we will rock this thing out. And I am fucking excited right now. So you're only partially correct there. The part that you are incorrect about is I knew I could get Pat Condolis. I had his number. Here's the thing. When he reached back out to me, I was in episode four and he said, Hey, Lance, what's going on? Because I knew him from a previous, um, uh, a previous situation. We'll talk about later when he's on. And I said, Pat, I'm watching your doc right now and I'm dying to ask you questions. I want to get you on a podcast. I want to get you on my radio show to interview you. I'd love to get Greg, but I don't know what's going to happen to him right now. And I don't want you to ruin it for me. So I'll just call you after I finish episode five, which is it's five episodes. And I'm the same way as you. I love when I go in and I don't know. And it's amazing how many of these docs, when I watch, I didn't follow. I I didn't know what the storylines were and I don't seek them out. See, my wife is a serial read ahead person. She will go to the back end of the book. She'll be on a Harry Potter book back in the day. She's on page 27. Boom. Then she's on page 730 or whatever J.K. Rowling. Don't get did. it. I don't get I, it. I don't understand it. She hates surprises. She she just wants to know. We'll be watching a show. We're watching Succession. I've finished it, two seasons. She's on season two. Does this happen at the end? I, I've said, I'm not know? telling you. I'm not telling you. I won't even read ahead. She makes us stop the series, whatever we're watching. And you know the synopsis? I won't even read a synopsis. I don't want to see the synopsis. Never, never, never. Right. I don't like seeing trailers. I don't like. No, I like trailers. Okay, so my my mother is, and and she listens to the pod, so she's going to hear this. But this is nothing new for her. Uh, she knows this. She has. She gets very excited when she's. Exp- and my mom has great taste in television. Like she doesn't watch bullshit. You know, my mom watches. 
high concept, great cable television. So we watch a lot of the same things. She watches many of the uh, series before I do. Well, I'll get started. She goes, oh my gosh. Okay, you just wait till episode three. And I, no, 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 no. She goes, no, I'm not telling you anything you don't you don't know. Like, it's not a big deal. You find out he murdered somebody halfway through the first episode. <laughs> no, mom, but, but see, I want that experience of finding out halfway through right. the first episode. Like the right. filmmakers wanted me to. She, but it's because she's so excited uh, to talk about it. My mom loves to like talk about, you know, go back and rehash it. So we get to do that. But I oftentimes um, have to be very careful because I'm, and a lot of people don't mind that. A lot of people can talk about something, go back and watch it. I don't want to know anything. In fact, I'm, I don't like watching television with somebody if they're like on their phone and I hear that. Like if my wife's texting somebody during a show, get out of here with that. Get out of here. I need. Quiet. Well, first of all, your keys, you should be on silent keys where when you text, you don't hear the keys at all. For sure. For that, sure. That, that should be a given. Yeah, right. that should be a given. So I, I am, I like it to be quiet. I'd rather you not um, be eating a, a, a juicy ripe peach. I don't want to have to hear that in my right ear. Uh, the sound mixer went to a lot of work. To, to tell me what I, he wants me to hear in my right ear, and it's uh-huh. not your peach, so don't, you know no fruit. While we're you appreciate the craft. Some people yeah. appreciate fruit, though. A ripe peach is also something that some people consider art. They are, but you know what? Unwrap your hard candies, okay, before the yeah. show starts. Let's unwrap okay. the hard candies. So let me ask you. So my wife and I, when I first met her, she knew I was a big movie buff, and she was too. It's one of the things, you know, our very first date we went and saw i think i told you this chocolate and also um crouching I like tiger you, i just like it when you say chocolate because i'm because i am in the food industry kind of right. like I, I do food type stuff so i'm kind I of in the it, industry i think it's chocolate yeah but i'm not pretentious like you are i just call what it's supposed to be called chocolate well then why don't you just i don't say croissant i don't say croissant i didn't go see a movie called croissant well, there's never been that film, but sometimes when I order, uh, like, let me ask you this. If you're sorry to, to, to go off script here, but like, right. if you go to a Mexican restaurant and right. you order, um, you know, like those things, they're tortillas, they're wrapped and they're covered in like a ranchero and a cheese sauce. Sure. What, what do you order? Yeah. I order some enchilada. <laughs> That's what I was afraid of. Okay. Or, a, or if I want, maybe I order a chili relleno. Okay. Okay. Well, Possibly. Right, so you're not you're not going with enchiladas. No, I order enchilada. Enchilada. Yeah. Enchiladas. <laughs> but sometimes yes. Or if I get a steak there, like some type of meat, I'll I'll order a bistec. You know. Okay. Will you order a carne asada? Mm-hmm. Carne asada. Yeah, I will. Um, if I am if I'm in Spain, where <laughs> right. we have to, you know, where it's more Castilian, and right. I'll have to get yeah. You know, I haven't been to Spain, but when I go, I'm going right. to totally talk exactly like they do. Right. Because I'm okay. kind of local everywhere I go. Okay. So anyway, you're at Chocolat. I'm a Chocolat. And, and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which I'm not doing an accent there because I want to keep our podcast going. Mm-hmm. And so so we meet. You know, well, this is our first date. We have this great date. We're, we're As we start dating, we go see – I would say at least two movies a week, sometimes three. And I mean, document, we, we see everything, everything, art house movie, everything. 
But I find out very quickly that she is someone who does not put, she's like you. She does not put up with any noise. It Like, it's not that she doesn't put up with the noise. Any noise in the movie theater really gets under her skin. This is in the movie theater. We're not streaming back in a day. It's early 2000s. It's we're at the movie theater. Any but like any noise, people talking, or it sounds like a little kid is crying at one of our movies, like, why is the baby at this movie? But mm-hmm. it can be just a little bit of noise. Now, ironically, she was blessed with five children after that, and mm-hmm. she's the person that has kids that potentially could be making noise in a movie theater. That's the ironic part. But I get where you're coming from. Coffer? Okay, for me, that's just life. Now it means they've got the virus. Now it means I need to get out. Now it means the virus is here and I've got to cover my face with my shirt and my mask and my glasses and my hands and run as fast as I can. In a movie theater, I don't sweat it. I mean, that happens. My wife will get frustrated by stuff like that. Yes. Now, when you talked about unwrapping the candies, that's what made me think of her because she's another one of those people that – She's just not, she can't really help herself. She doesn't like, of course, now that we stream everything, she's multitasking where she's on her computer or her phone, but she somehow tells me she's watching a movie too that I wanted her to watch. Like, watch the I show. just don't understand. So I was, uh, this was a year, two years ago, whenever, but I was at the theater and a guy like the row in front and over. So I get a good angle, you know, cause he's, he's the row ahead of me, but two over he's, he's got a Mamba. Do you know those candies, Mamba? No, I don't know those candies. Okay, okay. so Mamba is like it's essentially Starburst. Okay, it's 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 a delicious candy. It's a chewy candy. I they're love Starburst. Yeah. Okay, so they're individual squares. Okay. First of all, you don't bring a Starbucks. I mean, a Starburst in because you have to eat, unwrap each one individually. If they sell Starbucks at a theater, it should be a bag of pre-unwrapped chewy candy. So that way. You open that bag and boom, you're in like M&Ms. Mm-hmm. This motherfucker brings in Mamba. Okay. Let me tell you about Mamba. Mamba is a long thing like Starburst, but inside the Mamba, instead of like 20 chewy candies, they've divided them for some odd reason into four separate categories. So now you have, you have five wrapped up in one, but, but inside that pack of five, they're also individually wrapped. So this guy... He's just unwrapping candy the whole goddamn movie. I mean, it was <laughs> absurd. And I, I mean, Mamba should be illegal in a theater. I immediately, my here's here's the thing that comes to mind for me. As a businessman, I would say, are we spending too much in wrapping? Like, yes. should we eliminate some of the internal wrapping and maybe cut some of our production costs down to improve our profit? That's the first thing I'm doing. The second thing is I I don't feel like that's fair to the Starburst people that you put them in the same category because they use a wax paper to wrap their individual candy. So the wrap, I mean, the wax paper doesn't make as much noise as what I assume Mamba makes. Mamba sounds like something that is more of a metallic wrapper that will make a lot more noise. 
it's it, dude the outside is similar it's it's plasticky metallicy it makes noise then you get inside of it and you got four big blobs then you got to unwrap those four and then within those there's individuals it's a big fucking mess and it's a waste of paper and plastic and i'm still a little angry about mama i'm also on a lot of coffee all right we got to switch gears dude okay? yeah because because right now in. i've got so much going through my head that yeah. we could still do Exactly. And I know you're on painkillers right now. So this is, yeah, this sure. is a futile experience, like, you know, already. Okay. I dislocated my shoulder. Big deal. That's just a Saturday for me. Uh, right. Okay. Moving on. We'll get to that in a little bit. Um, we've got Pat Condellis, who is the director of Outcry, uh, mm-hmm. the documentarian coming on, along with Greg Kelly, uh, who is the subject, the lead kind of uh, subject in this documentary. I'm telling you right now, if you have not watched this documentary, uh, you need to do it. But more importantly, you need to push pause on this podcast. So um, we are going to talk about this in depth. We are going to talk about it at length. And there is going to be spoiler after spoiler after spoiler. So if you're somebody like me, somebody like Lance, I would push pause on this document. I mean, on this podcast, go watch it and then come back because we're going to have some really great information. If you're like Lance's wife, Nicole, you're probably going to listen. You're, you're going to listen first. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm first. telling you now, my wife will listen to this and then she'll say, I want to see that show Outcry because now that I know everything that happened, I can watch and it won't make me nervous. So remember, it's Showtime Sports, so you can go find it on Showtime. It's on demand and you can totally go binge all five episodes if you'd like to do it that way. Um, I'm really excited for this, Lance. I don't know if you know this about me. I'm... I'm a, a bit of a junkie when it comes to the criminal justice system, to courtroom, to law. Um, I've just always been a – I've always loved it, even from when I was younger. Loved courtroom. What do you mean by that? I, I, I wanted to be a litigator. I always wanted to be a litigator. Um, and from a young age, I fell in love with movies like uh, you know any John Grisham – based movie that came out i was in love with it um i loved watching courtroom drama so much so that i would actually in the summers when i got out of school uh you know when i was 10 11 well probably 12 13 14 my mom or my grandmother would take me downtown to the courthouse in houston and we would sit all day and watch trials what yes what i loved it can i ask you a question this was your mom's proudest day when you made it on like Law and Order and SVU and those shows that are courtroom shows. Was that like one as a TV fan and as someone who had spent time in courtrooms with you, was she proud when you were a little uh, kind of a fake prisoner, but at the same time you were a prisoner in some of those shows. Okay. So my, I never a lawyer that I know of, never a litigator. Ding, ding, ding. So, you know, I always kind of joked with my parents, my mom in particular, that, her proudest day would be if I could play a lawyer on TV because then she could tell her friends I'm a lawyer and I could be an actor and the world be right. Um, I, I, I don't think that's the case. And, and I was saying that in jest, but no, I ironically have never gotten to play a lawyer. Um, but I look forward to that day. Um, but yeah, man, I would go sit in these courtrooms and I would watch and I would, how old once again, how old were you 13, once again? 14, 15. I interned with uh, Dick DeGaron, a big defense defense attorney in, in Houston when I was That's a 17. big deal. Yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 uh, I also interned in the in in a juvenile courthouse for a judge, uh, a juvenile court judge. 
I think what I realized over time as my passion and acting took over is that really what I loved about it was the drama and the characters. Right. You know, I loved to watch someone on the stand have to emotionally talk about someone in their family or maybe not. I love to watch the way a litigator would manipulate or at least attempt to manipulate a jury. Um, I loved watching the Vore Dyer process of picking a jury. So all the aspects of it I loved. And, you know, I think that's why I follow it closely now. And I, I'm really engrossed in shows that have to do with with uh, courtroom and justice system. And I'm developing something on the side. I think you and I have talked about a little bit off off the pod um, about criminal injustice, injustice in the criminal in the uh, court systems. And um, yeah, man. So needless to say, all that. That's why I'm so excited for this. I'm geeked. That's good. And that would be and one of the things that I think is very interesting is because I think litigators are part actors and part salesmen. I mean, they've got to sell their 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 point of view and they've got to understand timing. They've got to understand delivery, inflection. So it's all those things. And so we when we get to see them in a documentary like Outcry. It's always very interesting to to, you know, you can feel the very best prosecutors and defenders you can feel them in the courtroom for lack of a better that's what we call it in sports you know there's a presence to them there is an aura to them and it's important to have that's why they're so expensive that's why you know public defenders are simply not as successful and the expensive ones are really good because they they know how to make you feel them from that jury box and they know how to pick a jury well um we're about to talk with pat uh who has told this story brilliantly. Um, and we're about to talk with Greg who unfortunately had to live this story. Um, and I'm just really excited for their insight. So I think, uh, let's dig into it, man. This is going to be awesome. Here we go. Okay. We're back. Greg, Kelly, uh, Lance, Eric, Pat Candelis guys. Uh, we've just been discussing how, pumped i am for this maybe a little too pumped with a little too much coffee um but really cannot thank you guys enough for being here with us and we can't wait to uh to dig into this amazing show that pat you you uh were the filmmaker for and greg unfortunately you were the subject of um yeah. and i i, I want to just quickly say that um Usually before we have people on i i do quite a bit of research and i like to know as much information as i can I decided to go another route here because I, I really wanted the listener of the podcast to be able to come here right after they watch the show and not go online. I didn't want to be influenced by things that I read online that might not be accurate. And so I wanted to be able to come here and talk to you guys and get it straight from you first. Um, so if there is a stupid question I ask, bear with me, but it's uh, from the mouth of someone in mind of someone who has not done prior research for that reason. So I hope you understand that. All good. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Other than watch the documentary. That's that do. I did. <laughs> Other than watch the documentary, you did that. And you know what's funny is this hit my radar because I had I had heard about it and then people started buzzing about it a little bit. Hey, have you seen Outcry? My radio host and he said, I watched the first couple of episodes. It's pretty crazy. I said, No, I haven't. And so I Googled it just to see where I could find it. I thought, okay, I'll just start this up. And I'm like, Hold on, that Pat Candelis. 
I got that dude's number in my cell phone. I know Pat Candelis. And so I started watching and reached out. And the reason I know Pat Candelis is because of this right here. And I still have it. <laughs> it's a document. It's a mockumentary called Draft Days. It's a, it's, I've got the actual DVD. You can see this is Keith Cornelius Jr., the subject of the mockumentary. And I met Pat because we just did kind of a goofy thing on the radio where we were it really wasn't even us. We were talking about Maurice Claret had challenged the court system and and supposedly high schoolers were going to be able to bypass college and go right to the pros. I mean, that was an actual thing yeah. that the courts had okayed for a very brief time. And so this high school kid who was a backup cornerback was not a prospect, unlike the guy we're going to talk to in a second, Greg Kelly. Um, he just had this incredible sense of humor. He calls us. He, he lets us know. He makes a declaration on our radio show at age 18 that he's going pro. He sends a letter to the NFL that he's going pro. And then I think, Pat, get it, correct me if I'm wrong, your brother who was listening told you about this thing going on that we were kind of just – we were keeping it alive as a radio bit. And he told you, and before you knew it, Pat reaches out to me. I help line it up. And before you know it, the kid is having an actual pro day with an NFL trainer, Danny Arnold, and and Jason Babin, a Houston Texans yeah. draft pick, is on it. And Dom Capers, the head coach of the Texans, is on the, the mockumentary. And it was really a lot of fun. Uh, for some reason, I'm not listed on IMDb for that, which is still kind of pisses me off a little bit, but uh, whatever. I love that you still have that DVD, Lance. That's amazing. Yeah. I haven't looked. I haven't even seen that. It's probably what 16, 17 years, something like Dude, that. Dude, it was probably two thousand two when you did it. It's probably eighteen years old. Yeah, I think I was still in college when we did it, but it was a it was a hell of a lot of fun, and it was crazy that yeah, it kind of just started out as a joke, and then uh, we kind of like wound up shooting a Texans practice and interviewing NFL athletes and trainers, and it, it got out of hand pretty quickly, but it was fun. So I, I do want to ask you, how did you? when did you decide to get into documentaries and are sports documentaries what you love best? Um, I don't, I don't know if I'd say that it's what I love best, but I certainly love them. Um, I really didn't get into documentaries too much until I was in film school at North Texas. And uh, I watched a couple that just changed everything for me. Thin Blue Line, Earl Morris was the one that just floored me, changed everything from that point on uh harlan county um you know there was a few that just I, I had never seen anything really done like that before but even when i graduated film school i never thought in a million years that i was going to be doing documentaries i think i was like every other film student thinking that we were immediately going to become scorsese and you know do uh big budget narrative films so it was something that evolved in a, in a kind of a natural way um and it's it's been the thing that I kind of discovered that I just love doing more than anything else. Pat, well, you're on the right side of timing because obviously documentaries yeah. non-scripted is surely uh, catching fire uh, for, you know, a lot of reasons, most of which don't help me as an actor, but that's okay. Um, right. But, but what, what, uh, you know, fast forwarding to this story in particular, um, just give us a, give us a little bit of, backstory on how this particular story caught your radar and how you went up about getting it started. Uh, every Right when this whole thing started, I had missed all of the stuff unfolding in real time with Greg's case, which was 2013 and 2014. 
I was going back and forth from Austin to Colorado, uh, working on an eight-part documentary for CNN that we were doing. So I, I missed all the original reporting on it, didn't really hear anything about it. And then uh, at South by Southwest in 2017, we did a documentary called Disgraced. And when that premiered, uh, a friend of a friend went to the premiere and told me afterwards, you got to you gotta look at this Greg Kelly kid. And I, I was didn't really know anything about it. And then uh, uh, she shared some things with me that were very interesting. Um, but you're always skeptical because you know, it's constant that people will say, Oh, you should do this. Or I know somebody who did it. You know, everybody thinks they know somebody that that's worthy of a documentary and nine and a half times out of 10, it's not true. Um, this one was a little bit different though, because the story took place in Williamson County, which is where I lived. I was very familiar with some of the people, some of the officials that were involved in, in the original case. Uh, so that really kind of piqued my interest initially and then I met with Greg's family. I spoke to his brother. Uh, I think I spoke to Aldo first, Greg, and then it was Marlon. And then we set up a big meeting at the Anderson household. And there must have been seriously probably 20 people at that meeting. I mean, there was family members. There was the whole Anderson family. That, and then there was just kind of random supporters that I think even a couple of them hadn't even met Greg at that point. And it was kind of a... I was sitting on the couch and kind of encircled by all of these people who were incredibly passionate about the story, but there was some legal stuff that just didn't make sense to me at that point. And it wasn't until I spoke with Keith Hampton, Greg's attorney, and he gave me some really specific answers that I just, I went on a trip right after that and I could not stop thinking about the case. And it, it, it's a, it's weirdly haunting. And at that point, I said, what, you know, why don't we try to do this? Talk to my team at, at Batbridge. We had long discussions about this because we didn't know what the hell was going to happen, if anything was going to happen. Uh, and we just decided to go ahead and jump right in. And we figured maybe maybe we could get to a 90 minute doc with the story. So. And, and Greg, we're going to jump over to you in one second, but you said something that that uh, I want to follow up on. You you said that you, you, you know. Read, you researched it, and then you went and you you went into Williamson County, and you sat down at the Andersons' house, and you meet with all these supporters and the Anderson family and, and Greg's family. But you didn't say you met with anybody that was on the other, I want to say, side, for lack of a better term. Yeah. Uh, did Did you feel like you would be able to tell this story objectively if you were only at this point getting narrative from one side? Yes. At that point, we were just talking about initial conversations. You know, mm -hmm. a camera hadn't even been picked up at that point. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I wasn't concerned about that at all, knowing that we were going to reach out to everybody and give everybody an opportunity, the same opportunity in the same platform, which is what happened. And ultimately, I mean, we wanted to you can't make the documentary, though, without Greg and without access to them. So that was the first kind of hurdle. And it was a big one because I wasn't able to, at that point, really communicate with Greg until everybody else had signed off on it. And it's a dangerous thing, you know, especially because I, I didn't even I wasn't even aware at that point what was happening with the appellate process and where that was. And Keith had all sorts of things going on behind the scenes that he wasn't communicating to me. And I think at that point, he wasn't even really communicating it with the Andersons and everybody because it was seemed like it was kind of hanging in the balance a little bit. 
So um, convincing Keith, his attorney, let, let us start shooting in the middle of this process was really difficult. And I, I am kind of shocked that he did it. And I think the only reason he did it is because I told him, hey, we're in this for the long haul. Whatever we shoot now, you know, we won't release any of that footage until whenever this thing is all finished and resolved. So here's a kid, and we'll bring him in right now, in, in Greg Kelly, who was a sophomore, 185-pound hybrid safety linebacker, did this, did a little bit of that, was already on varsity as a sophomore, um, then adds 10 pounds, 195, runs down on kickoffs, makes a bunch of plays, catches the interest of, of college, uh, of college teams and, and college recruiting services and, and, um, dating the, uh, dating the, the cheerleader and everything that sounds like a small town, Texas dream stuff that stuff that they make documents, they make docuseries about that in a good way. But all of a sudden, Greg, you go from that life to being accused of being a sexual predator of children. You are charged you are arrested i mean you go from living the little the small town texas dream to an absolute nightmare take us through the early stages of of your high school you know career as a football player and then into that brick wall where your life changed forever yeah yeah um you know it never gets easier talking about this stuff guys i mean you know, growing up as a kid, I grew up with very athletic brothers. I grew up with a mom who ran track when she was a little, uh, when she was a girl uh, from Guatemala. Um, I grew up with a dad who was a car salesman. He sold cars um, and houses his whole life. And so I grew up with two um, parents that worked really, really hard uh, to make sure that their kids um, had what was necessary to be successful and also play sports because we're just super athletic. I mean, I looked up to my brothers growing up. They're, they're five, six years older than me. Um, I have two half brothers that, that I consider full brothers as well. And we were all athletes. So growing up like that, sports was the center uh, deal in our family. Um, you know, I was, I was growing up playing sports outside of school, um, in school, multiple different sports, football, track, basketball, um, all the way up until middle school and high school. And, you know, I had friends, I was real easy to make friends with. Um, and I just wanted to live the normal, you know, kid life, man. And so going into high school, um, actually going into ninth grade, eighth grade, me and Gabriel, my now wife, she, uh, her and I met in eighth grade in math class. So I think it's fair to kind of bring her in the situation because she took a, she's a very, 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 very vital role and um, keeping me strong during this whole thing. Um, Gabri, we met in eighth grade and we went to the same high school and her mom was the director of the dance team there at the high school. Her dad was a pretty well-known golf coach and leadership teacher, uh, very well respected. Um, so going up into high school, I had a lot of people um, in my corner and I also had a platform where I was, you know, the boyfriend of the hotshot Bluebell. So kind of having that, I kind of almost had a spotlight in that as well. And then also in the football realm. So um, I decided when I was, uh, I guess, a sophomore, I wanted to take football very seriously because I knew at the time um, my dad just suffered from a, a pretty severe stroke. And my mom was told that there were some brain tumors growing uh, in her head. 
So I knew that they couldn't work anymore. So we were asking my brothers help financially and they provided help, you know? And so I knew that I wasn't going to go to college unless I had, you know, straight A's and, and I was top 5%, which was, that was out of the picture. I was not the top 5% academically. Um, so I needed to go in football. I needed to have that full ride. And so I got, uh, I got very serious with football my sophomore year. I was good enough to play and get pulled up with the varsity and uh, I backed up the senior starter. Um, so, uh, but I had, the, I had, I had reps going in as a sophomore as well, but junior year came around. I had to fill those shoes because that guy went to go and play some college ball. So I filled those shoes up. I, I, I showed up every day, every extra workout, every film study. Um, I lived in the gym and I went to gold's gym at 5.00 AM in the morning, uh, came to football practice at 7.30 go to the first period all the way to ninth period and then uh, do football practice in the evening, go home, study, watch a little TV, eat dinner and go to sleep and repeat. You know, that was, uh, that was my junior year. And then it came, came a point where both of my parents' medical conditions got very, so serious that my dad had a very major stroke and it put him in the hospital into a rehab center. And my mom, um, it got to a point where she needed her, her brain tumors operated on and removed. So I had no, nobody taking care of me in the, the Cedar Park and Leander area. I couldn't move to Austin because that meant that I would leave Leander and everything I've established there already. Um, my brothers lived in Austin. So I had, at the time, I had a guy that was backing me up um, in my position in football, um, Jonathan McCarty. We, we kind of knew each other, you know, going into uh, – going into um, high school, middle school, you know, we were kind of close friends. We were just friends, you know, through athletics. Um, but I decided, man, to, to, uh, he, his mom was a big booster in the whole football program. And she actually heard about my situation that I was in and offered to uh, take me into her house so I could still go to Leander and uh, continue to play ball there. And man, I tell you that right there. I mean, people always ask me if you could just take back one thing, Greg, in your whole life, if you could just take one thing back, what would you take back? And I, I would have to say moving into that house. Cause if I have never moved into that house, um, none of the series of events that happened after that wouldn't, it wouldn't have happened. Um, that's one thing that I would, I would not do. And so leading into that, me moving into that house, I lived there for several months. Um, actually, I believe I lived there from, man, it's been so long. I can't even remember how long the timeline I lived there, but it was it was several months, if not a year. Um, but it came around, man, where um, summer came around of me living in there for about seven months. And I got accused in, Jul um, in July of 2013 for sexual assaulting a kid in that daycare. I was actually in champions course at the time, which is a summer strength and conditioning camp that the high school runs. And I remember actually getting released from that camp um, and checking my phone out in the parking lot of the high school. And um, I see a bunch of missed calls from my brother. And it's Marlon, by the way, my brother Marlon. And I, I call him back and he tells me, man, something's going on at the McCarty's household. If you're thinking about coming here, don't. Somebody's saying, that you sexually assaulted their kid. And at that point, I, it, it blew me away. It blew me back because I thought he was joking with me. 
it's just something you don't joke with. And then again, I step back. I'm like, you know what? Like, it's my brother and maybe he's joking with me. Maybe he's not. But I told him, I said, dude, I didn't do any of that. And if somebody's accusing me of that, they're wrong. Who, who do I need to talk to? And um, he said, I don't know, man. I'm trying to get more information. So I don't know. I don't know if you ever prepare for getting accused of something like that. I don't think anybody does, especially if you're not living that life. If you live in a life where all you do is play football and go to school and try to make something of yourself and an accusation like that happens, the first thing you can think of in your head is, you know what, we have a justice system that's going to straighten this out. You know, we have a justice system that I can, I can go and I can explain like, Hey, I have nothing to do with that. But that wasn't the case here. Nobody heard my plea. Nobody heard uh, me saying I didn't do it. it. I've the moment that I got accused of that, and then them taking it to the police, there was an automatic painted target on my back, and there wasn't going to be anything in this world as lo- as well as long as Detective Daly had it that would have changed that target. Um, clearly, we could see that now, but it's it uh, it's something, man, that I can't even explain. I can't even wrap my head around um, if anybody ever prepares for something like that. Greg, I want to ask you a question that that um, I thought about when I watched this, and and we find out a couple episodes in that the McCartys are not great dudes, um, no, and they had they have a history, um, and you are, you know, working your ass off to be as squeaky clean as you can possibly pat i think knows where i'm going here but but to to be as squeaky clean as you possibly can knowing that your college and then your livelihood depends on it um you're in a small town as a viewer am i as a viewer i watch and i say well it's a small town we have to know that these guys are not good dudes they've got older brothers that have been in and out of either prison or been arrested was there ever a part of you that said, I don't, this isn't, yes, I need to live somewhere so I can stay at Leander, but I don't know that this is the best situation for me to put myself in this house with these guys. And obviously nobody had done anything to the degree of which you were going to be accused, but it seemed like from the documentary, again, only judging on the documentary, that these guys had a history of not being the best eggs. So was there ever a point that you, you kind of, were hesitant to move into the house with them right so i was i was never hesitant initially to move into that house because i didn't know anything about jonathan's brothers i didn't know that i didn't even know who one of his brothers was currently in prison when i moved into that house i didn't know any of that stuff i didn't even know if jonathan i didn't know how many brothers jonathan had so i just saw a situation where i only know the mccarty household from what i know about the mccarty household which is going there on and off after practice, eating pizza rolls, playing video games, going back home. I mean, that's, that's pretty much what I knew of it. And it was a, it was a, a very friendly place. Shama was super lovely and, and welcoming us in and cooking for us and stuff like that. Um, she, she was a football booster that booster that loved inviting athletes over. So I knew it was just a, it was a situation where out of everything that was on the table, um, it was something that I had to make really, really quick. It was a decision I had to make really, really quick. And if, if Leander found out that I moved to Austin, I would have been zoned to Austin High. And, you know, that's me, me knowing that, okay, I'm working my butt off to get a scholarship. 
one thing I know about college scouts is they don't like trying to trace you down if you go to another school. And so I just, I, I, I had to make a decision where I didn't know anything about that. And I actually remember telling my mom going in whenever Johnson started um, veering off into a wrong path in life where he started messing with drugs and hanging out with people and bringing people over that weren't supposed to be in the house, especially since it was a daycare. Um, I remember actually telling my mom, I just don't want to be here anymore. Mom, like, please come pick me up. Like, let me go home with you. And I'm, I remember her telling me like, Mijo, I'm sorry. I just, we can't, we don't like, we don't even have a house. You know, it's like my mom is, is, is in a hospital recovering from a brain tumor. And my dad is in a rehab facility. There's nowhere else I could possibly go uh, without getting zoned. So I knew that that was the only option I had. So it was super tough, but at the same time, man, it was crazy. Pat, I, I, following up on that, I got to ask you about this as a filmmaker, kind of go off script here for a second. But so putting together, and this gets into the process a little bit because you've got a storyboard. Once you get like, as it's unfolding, you're in the middle of all of this is happening as you're filming, right? You've, you're yeah. filming the past, you hit the present, and then you have to continue forward with the future. Do you storyboard or, or to get an idea of how you're going to place and edit things? Because we don't find out about Jonathan McCarty's brothers being, and Jonathan for that matter, about all the trouble they had been in. It's like you hit us in episode, I don't know, three or four, like, whoa, what the fuck? We, we didn't know this was coming. When did you find that out? And what about the decision of when to release that to the viewer? Can you take us through that? Yeah, we don't we don't storyboard. We we write outlines. Right. And again, initially we we started this. We were thinking this might be a one off documentary. And so everything was very fluid as we were going through this process and we were learning new things every day and having to kind of pivot and adapt. So um, it really was after the writ hearing when uh, Greg's former attorney, Patricia Cummings, was on the stand. And it's a super dramatic moment because it was probably far more dramatic in person being in the courtroom, watching everything that had happened that day and then finding out. I didn't know at that point either because, you know, you're asking Greg earlier how much he knew about the McCarty brothers. There was, I think, multiple records that they had in arrest that were under seal because they were juveniles at the time. So none of that stuff or most of that stuff, I'll say, was was not really public knowledge. So Keith didn't tell me that. I didn't really know the full story with the brothers until we were in the courtroom. Now, I had, I had seen photos at the very beginning of Greg and Jonathan, which were shocking, completely shocking. And the question was, yeah, when do we reveal that to the audience? And um what we decided was we wanted to fill in. This is such a complicated story and it's so complex and you have to introduce so many, so many different people to the audience. We wanted to set the table kind of first before we get into that, that evidence. Uh, you don't want people to shut off, right? Because they hang on one piece of evidence at the very beginning. And it would have been uh, uh, ill-advised, I think, for anybody in the audience to do that. So we were trying to position key pieces of evidence at key moments that, that didn't, mess with the flow of the story. You did a beautiful job of that. Uh, and somebody who didn't know the story before I watched the doc, thank God, because I, I was able to watch it from a clear sense. And, and um, yeah, you, you didn't lean, nod, hang a lantern on any piece of evidence throughout the beginning, which was, which was awesome. Um, 
I, I want to, uh, there's so much I want to get to, but, but I want to start now, you, you know, who the fuck is Jake Bryden? <laughs> who the fuck is Jake Bryden? I mean, is he a detective? Is he, uh, does he work at McDonald's? Is he an attorney? Who is this guy? Totally. I never know who he is. This is the question that I probably get more than anything else. Is Yeah, me too. Is who is really Greg? Same thing. Yeah. Uh, what's so funny about that is I had the same response. Like David Anderson, the first meeting we had was like, "You really got to talk to Jake." And I was like, "Who is this Jake guy? What is what is the deal with this guy?" And then when we when I talked to him, I mean, when he's introduced in Ep One, that's really it. There's not much more to the story. He had never met Greg. He had, uh, I think David Anderson, Greg's father-in-law, had taught him at one point. And like Greg said, David Anderson has a has a stellar reputation in the community. And he had, Jake had brothers that lived in Williamson County and was familiar with the history of wrongful convictions there and just decided to jump in. And as he says in the doc, like he jumped in before he could even say whether or not Greg was guilty, which is pretty crazy. Uh, but... He's he's also incredibly effective, incredibly effective, and he put his he put himself out on the line uh, in a really difficult way, which is admirable as hell. Yeah, but did he bring his own bullhorn, or was there a bullhorn there for him to pick up and immediately start? Because this <laughs> this dude is like straight to the bullhorn. Okay, everybody, we're gonna go. He's gone. The sheriff's gone. Mannix is gone. And I'm like, whoa, wait, wait. So, but, but answer for a second. Who is he though? Yeah. Like literally, who, what is the guy? Literally, do? Work at Home who Depot? is Jake? Like who is Jake? Bryan? I can, you know, if, I, I can answer that if you, if you guys want me to. Please. Go ahead. Um, I can, I can, I can explain to him, uh, you guys who Jake Bryden is to me. Okay. Um, Jake, man, Jake out of nowhere. So kind of to backtrack a little bit with coach Anderson. So coach Anderson's taught Jake when, uh, back in like 03 when Jake graduated uh, from Leander High School. Coach Anderson's probably taught every male that is a resident of Leander, Texas. Uh, so he's known he could easily run and win mayor of Leander if he wanted to. That's how that's how much uh, Coach Anderson's known. So Jake took his class, and then one, whenever after I was convicted and I was all over the, the media here in Leander, Jake saw Coach Anderson on the TV and was like, you know, Coach Anderson, David was crying. He was sobbing, you know, and the camera caught him crying right after my trial. And Jake called him. He said, hey, man, what's the deal with Greg? Like, what happened? And he says, you know, Jake, um, Greg's a, a wonderful young man. He dates my daughter and he's getting taken away for something he didn't do. And I don't know if there's anything we can do to get him back. And Jake's like, do you really believe he's innocent? He says, absolutely. I mean, he came to me first before anybody else sat down with me and I challenged him and asked him if he did it. And he looked at me in the eye and said, no. And so uh, it speaks volumes of who Greg is to me and, and who Greg is to Gabriel. And so we, uh, we want to fight for him. And Jake was like, if you're telling me there's nothing that we can do, then you're telling the wrong person that, because if there's something we can do, we're going to do it. So that's the type of person Jake is. And to kind of paint you a picture. Also, Jake is led by God more than anybody because he doesn't listen to me. He probably doesn't listen to Pat and he doesn't listen to Keith. But clearly he's done things without our authority on many occasions, but he, he listens to his spirit. 
that's just how Jake is. I mean, sometimes it's impulsive. It's probably the wrong voice talking to him. But at the same time, he he he's a fighter and he fights the good fight. And out of nowhere, he jumps in from left field um, as like an angel in my case. And I even like told Gabriel many times, I was like, is this man an angel? Because, I mean, I'm, I'm struggling with the whole thing. And, and but then again, I heard him open up his mouth to save my life with that bullhorn. I'm like, nah, he's not an angel. So, uh, and, and so, but, but man, to be able to fight for somebody you do not know because you believe, um, somebody has been wronged is something that I strive for each and every day because, um, I, I, I tell myself, I want to be just like Jake one day, you know, that man's a superhero in, in many cool. ways and he's my best friend now. So he's a guy, That's- look, he's, he's one of these rare guys that actually put his money where his mouth is. And he put himself out there. He owns a construction company. He's incredibly successful. But what he undertook was a multi-year grassroots effort. And like Jake should be the poster child for grassroots organizing and effectiveness because he has been incredibly effective and absolutely relentless. You know, I I just want to say just real quick. I grew up in a small town in, in Richmond, Rosenberg, outside of Houston. Leander's a small town. There's something about small town behaviors that if you didn't grow up, like the Coach Anderson thing, right? Everybody knows a certain guy, a certain coach, a certain female teacher. There's just there's something about them that you never forget. They they imprint on you, and right. they can and, and that can happen in any big city, but it's the little things about saying it, there's interpersonal connections that develop that are stronger than maybe you have in larger cities. And, and Eric asked a question previously about, you know, Hey, listen, this is small town, Texas. You, it, people there in the city had to have known about the McCarty brothers. I don't care if that was sealed or unsealed word gets around in small towns. You know what I mean? And so I don't know, there's just something appealing to me about watching the backdrop of the small Texas town, because I know that there's more going on and there's more behind the scenes going on, especially as it comes to the justice system than meets the eye. That's almost always the case. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, and it was uh, the, the world building in this was was particularly interesting, again, because it's not only Leander or Cedar Park, but it's in Williamson County, which has such a long history. And uh, it, and it's it's the football angle. It, it was such a it was such a unique story from from every possible angle and the people in it are unbelievably unique again greg's family the andersons jake uh sean dick keith hampton all of these people are fascinating fascinating people and the circumstances that they kind of all collide in and and outcry is unbelievable so i certainly like you're saying the city the the community is a character yeah um it absolutely is a character and you see that and it's it's remarkable in a small town how when you do come together you can actually you can be bigger than the justice system you can be bigger than um you know you can affect real change so which needs to be done but we're in this small town and we're watching and Jake, you've explained who clearly the, the only way I can describe it is an angel. Like yeah. you said, I think that's the best description of him that you could possibly make. Um, and thank God for him, uh, for you. Um, you've got all these young people who uh, are out 
protesting and in support of GK, right? And they've got the bracelets and the signs, many of which have never met you or laid eyes on you before. Um, is that because the small, because there's a lot of people who are in big cities who watch that and they go, you know, they're, they're, they're cynics and they say, um, this is a perfect example of young people today. They jump on a cause because they feel more comfortable because the world is separated by social media and all the other bullshit. And if they can feel part of something, by golly, whether they believe it or not, they're going to jump on a bandwagon. Um, but then, you know, or is it because in this community, there was something bigger than that. There was a, a, a systemic problem in the justice system with Mannix, um, with uh, duty that people just understood that, uh, you know, there was history of oppressive prosecution or a prosecution that was railroaded too quickly. Um, and I'd be interested to hear if, if I made myself clear what your feeling on that was. Maybe you, Pat, because you were coming into it as opposed to being involved in it. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was interesting as well. It was, again, it was something that was so incredibly unique that somebody that's accused of molesting two four-year-olds gets an unbelievable amount of support. You just don't see that. I think part of that was because Greg was well-known in the community. He had a great reputation. He had never been in trouble. He was a great student, a great football player. He had so many things going for him. Uh, you know, the momentum was so great. Uh, it just seemed like it came completely out of left field. The other part of it, I think, is that this happened in a community that had a history of wrongful convictions and anybody that lives in or around Williamson County is all too familiar with that. And so I think, I think Greg was extended, I think an initial benefit of the doubt for a couple of reasons. And it's one, because he was so well known and, and, you know, had so many well-respected people in the community that knew him very well and, and were willing to stand up and vouch publicly in front of cameras for somebody that had been accused of something so terrible. And it's again, it's because Williamson County has gotten this wrong multiple times in the past. And I think that alone would make people go, wait a minute, what? Maybe they got this wrong too. So I think it was a combination of all those factors that led to, to people really standing up and, and asking for change. But to that point, I, I do want to say this, one of the best, there's, there's tons of quotes in this sound bites that I love. But one of the ones that stands out to me the most is when Jake says that he went in to talk to Janet Duty, who was the DA that prosecuted Greg. You know, she didn't have to listen to me because I'm just a nobody. But she didn't she didn't expect all of us other nobodies to get together. Oh, and man. It's a really powerful, profound statement. And, and it is that way. And but it's this yeah. is a great example of if you have people, if you can get together, you can absolutely enact change in your own community that's significant that will impact everybody on a day-to-day -day basis in a far greater way than anything at the federal government level level will oh that, that yeah that, and eric uh, um, gave me chills what's up greg and to piggyback to piggyback off of pat and, and you eric you um you you explained how you know the, all the protests and the rallies um just kind of looking back at it yeah i mean half of the people there i've really never um, interacted or met in my life. Um, but I think that they, they were kind of, they were connected with somebody that did meet me and did know me. And I think from time to time, again, from literally the first week of me being convicted and getting letters all the way up to 
me being exonerated in this doc and still literally this morning, um, there's always a saying where it, it kind of, it strikes all the way down to your bones where what happened to me could happen to anybody. And I think when people realize that, when they watch this documentary and they see the law that, that is in play, that can just accuse you, um, that with no evidence at all, and then you have to go wait years and then go to a trial, get indicted. As long as you're indicted by a grand jury and then you go face trial, it's your word versus the victim. And if the jury, jurors believe the victim, then you're convicted for how many years that, that, that crime goes with. That's literally the law that we have here in Texas. So I think when people see this that don't know me, I think they a lot of them um, came out to support and rally because they were seeing themselves maybe at one point, right? I mean, that could have actually happened. Jake even says that in the documentary, he quotes, he says, man, um, you know, this could be me, this could be my brother, and this could be anybody here. Um, and, and being in Williamson County with the rap sheet of, you know, falsely accusing, wrongfully convicting Michael Morton, um, and then Jana Duty coming in trying to say, you know, oh, we're going to make sure this doesn't happen again. And there she goes, years later, gets charged with, you know, multiple different crimes while she was a DA. I mean, withholding evidence, like what? So, um, yeah, it's it's crazy. And I think people were actually scared to death. That's why they wanted to uh, to step in as well. Well, and that's it, Greg. And and when I watch this, I you truly do say that this can happen to anybody. It's not about yeah. you at this point. You've got a detective who is on the stand who literally says, what's he say? Uh, successful prosecution. Successful That's prosecution, the goal. right? That's the goal. What the fuck is that? And then yeah. you have Mannix, who at one point is asked, how do you differentiate between fact and fiction during a child's interview? And Mannix says, I don't. That's up to the prosecution. But then you hand it off to D.A. Duty, who literally just has to notch this in her belt. She can't. She trusts that the police are doing their job and the police are trusting her to do her job. So if there's one breakdown, we're all fucked. And then once we are, once there is a breakdown and something bad happens because he didn't do his job or he did it, you know, poorly. Now we can't look like we've got pie on our face. So we just have to protect it. So now we're going to hide exculpatory evidence in order to make sure that we protect that. Um, yeah. There are so many flaws in that system. They they defend themselves by talking about the grand jury. Now, for people who are listening who aren't in Texas, or aren't familiar with it, the grand jury is a system that Texas uses to protect against uh, oppressive prosecution. You know, you have to go into this grand jury process. The, the DA has to present it to the grand jury, and the grand jury then has to say, yes, you have enough evidence to prosecute. We didn't see anything about the grand jury in the documentary. I'd be, I'm interested in knowing, um, as a nerd for the process, what happened during that grand jury were, I don't believe, and maybe it was still when there was a pick-a-pal program, but I don't know if, I don't know if you're familiar with that pick-a-pal program, but, um, the grand jury at one point in Texas, because they couldn't get people to sit on the grand jury, what they essentially did was cops would go, it, they would literally pick a pal and they would find retired cops or whatever to come and sit on the grand jury. Well, this was a massive conflict of interest because you had friends of the DA on this grand jury who were calling each other by name and knowing that the DA needed this to go to prosecution. So there was not really a, 
um, unbiased decision being made by the grand jury. So can you tell me a little bit about what happened during the grand jury portion? I, Pat, if you were there, or if not, Greg, you obviously were sitting there part of it. I wasn't there. I don't think yeah. you were at the grand jury part. Were you, Greg? No. So I only know of the grand jury part of what Patricia has told me. And um, quite frankly, I think I remember her telling me that it went pretty fast. You know, the, the DA presented it and the same day, boom, I get indicted. I mean, I think it, I think it was just a, you know, rubber seal stamp. You know what? He's going to trial and and uh, which is absolutely crazy. Well, but I mean, this is, you know, this is where this is where we have to talk about. I, I think what the charge was, because what the charge is ultimately is what is going to is what is going to put more walls in front of you and in front of you proving yourself innocent really than anything else. It's much less about them than proving your guilt in reality. I'm not saying the way it's supposed to be, but the reality is what happens is when you hear something like sexual abuse of a four year old and then it turns into two four year olds. Well, I mean, of course, everybody's horrified. You're horrified hearing that, Greg. You are, Pat. All of us are horrified when you hear that. But then when you have prosecution and police, they don't want to let that slip through their fingers, obviously. So they're going to do everything in their power. I want to ask you, Greg, as Wait, someone who... Lance, Lance. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Lance, that, that, that defeats the purpose of having a grand jury. So, I mean, I understand... You mean the grand jury that took 30 seconds for him to but, for them to pass it through? That's my fucking point. My point right. is, is that that defeats the purpose of having it. You could be as horrified as you want to be, but your point of sitting there on the grand jury is to listen to a DA tell you what evidence he or she has and then make a decision on whether or not you are about to take a child in his own right and put him because, you know, the minute it hits the television, he's guilty as far as okay. anybody that just, well, let me ask you then. So that's not fair to just be like, well, because of the charge, that's the whole point of having I'm a not, jury to begin with. Exactly. I'm not saying that I'm not passing judgment. I'm, I'm just talking about the reality of the situation. And let me ask you this based on the way Pat pulled this together. The very first thing he shows you is a four-year-old kid making a comment about Mr. Greg that immediately I'm like, Holy shit. And I know that this is going to go, you don't throw that out there. You know that it's going to go in a thousand different directions, obviously. But that very first moment, Pat, that you throw that out there, that's powerful as shit because you realize, holy shit, this thing is going to get deep because I know it's a five-part doc, five doc. I know that this kid, Greg Kelly, may, at this time I didn't know, he may or may not have done this. He may have gotten out of it. And I, I have so many things to to take off on on this very point because it is a major major point. It's one thing to be involved in something else. It's it's another to have this horrible thing stuck to you because I have to think Pat or even Greg, you guys realize the same thing too. That is something where people are so horrified. They don't want to think that the perpetrator quote unquote gets away. Yeah. And I, I think the reason we we put the the child in that in the CAC interview at the very beginning is for me, that was one of the first questions that I had and that we wanted to answer immediately when when everybody's telling us that Greg Kelly is innocent, then the question is, well, why did his name come out of this four-year-old's mouth? Right. right. What 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 was this? Where's the origin of this entire journey comes from? And that's where it comes from. So when you see that, and that's the only bit of evidence that they had, and it's all they need to get a super aggravated sexual assault of a child charge, 
which in Texas means any kid under six years old, it's a minimum 25 years, no possibility of parole, maximum of 99 years. So it's one of the harshest penalties under the law that requires the, the least amount of evidence. But if you're going to bring it back to a grand jury, I mean, all you do is show the kids saying Greg did this, indicted, done. I, I don't know what else they would necessarily need to show there. And if you don't, if you don't examine those interviews and, and look at what happened and put the timeline together, uh, um, a jury's not going to know that. And the jury in Greg's first case didn't know much. And but what they did know was still shocking to me that they said 12 jurors said beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, I, I'm beyond shocked that that happened, that he was even convicted. And I think that's the reason why, you know, they offered Greg two different plea deals leading up to that trial, because I think they knew they had no case. And I spoke to one of the prosecutors that prosecuted Greg, who wouldn't go on camera and do an interview, but spoke to me. And I said, I asked the question, how unique was this case? And the answer was not at all. Not at all. This is when I got to say, when Greg wouldn't take Greg, you wouldn't take a 10 year probation. No jail time. If I was Five correct. Years. Well, Five first, years. well, first it started 10, at right? Or no. 10. Yeah. yeah. First it was, it was 10. Like 10 and then- you wouldn't take 10. Then it was five. You wouldn't take five because you would have been a registered sex offender for the rest of your life. Yeah. And I'm like, right off the bat, I'm thinking, holy shit. I mean, if this guy won't take a five-year probation, which was an incredibly unusual punishment for somebody who was supposedly the super predator or whatever the name is for it, who had molested two children. And it's a five-year – like that didn't make sense right off the bat. That's how you knew something was fishy. The fact that you didn't take that also was very telling to me because I'm thinking this guy is standing up for his name, not just now, but for the rest of his life. That really, really matters. Talk about that process. How hard was that to make a decision like that? It was one of the most courageous, most brave, most bravest things I've ever done in my life. Um, I think when you're talking about your life and not knowing what's on the other side of that door of fate that you're about to walk into. Um, it's absolutely scary guys. I mean, to try to just depict this and have you guys put in my shoes, you know, about to do one, go into one of the most stressful, emotional, most embarrassing, one of the most horrific, disgusting things you're ever going to have to do in your life, which literally go into a room for days where somebody's pointing a finger at you saying he molested some, this kid, he did this, he did that lying about you over and over and over again. And then also being told by your own attorney, not to show any emotions, that stuff starts to pent up. And I remember, I remember each and every day after in that trial, I went home crying. I, I, I literally, I mean, I, I, because of this emotions, just pent up so much. They bottled up each and every day of that trial. Before that trial started, I was in a room with my mom and I was in a room uh, just with my mom, actually. And um, Patricia put us there while she went to go talk to the DA. And the DA, before we were about to do jury selection, Patricia comes in and says, hey, we've uh, the DA wants to strike a deal with you. And, you know, I'm just like, whatever they say, I'm not going to take it. I'm innocent. I don't deserve anything less than freedom. I'm going to fight this. And super brave, right? Sticking to my word. And then they say 10 years probation. 
and knowing all the shit, dude, that we've been through, I'm just like, no, I immediately say, no, no, I don't deserve anything less than freedom. So she goes and talks to him and she comes back and says five years probation, mm. lifetime, lifetime sex registration, couple of fines, couple of days in jail. And then I remember looking at my mom and my mom's like crying. She's break, she's breaking down. She's, she's scared. She's so emotional. And she, she remember, I remember telling me, I don't know what's going to, I don't know if I can handle you going in there, Greg. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know if anything bad's going to happen to you. Um, and I remember seeing her broken. And when she starts to break, you start to break, you know, because you all, all you want is your mom to feel safe and you want your mom not to worry about you. And so, um, going into that, man, I remember calling Gabri and she pretty much said, Greg, you're not going to go up there and say something you didn't do. You know, you're not going to go and do that. I said, absolutely. I'm not, I can't, I can't declare to the world that I did this because that's exactly what they're going to make me do. And so I tell her, no, I said, I'm not taking it. And so, um, yeah, man, we went back and we, uh, we faced one of the hardest trials I've ever, um, had to endure ever. And guys, that to me, that said a hell of a lot about who Greg was and a hell of a lot about who the prosecutors were. Because if, my question was, look, if you really believe that Greg molested two four-year-old boys, how in the hell is five years probation, no jail time justice? How could you look yourself in the mirror and look the parents of those kids in the mirror, in the face if you believe that that actually happened and said, we got justice for you? He's never going to spend a day in jail. It's five years probation for somebody that you're claiming is molested two four-year-old boys. To me, I'm like, it's total BS. It's complete BS. You don't do that to say, you know, we've got justice. He's 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 going on probation like that's a slap in the face. If you think about your kids going to you and saying something like that happened and the DA turned around and said, we got him five years probation. You would not be happy with that. Right. You know, so it's right. it's to show that the whole thing was bullshit. Greg. Right. Um, yeah, man. I mean, listen, you, <laughs> you grew up a hell of a lot quicker than I did um, and made a decision yeah. that uh, I, I commend you for. And, and I guess hope that if that was ever, you know, that I would be able to be as strong as you are in that situation. Um, did you ever, while you were making that decision and they came back from 10 to five, you know, what Pat just said, like, did you feel like you had him on the ropes Would that? Did that factor into it or no? I knew something was up. I knew something was up when they, when they were just offering me probation. I mean, I, for, for months, man, going up to the, to the trial, Patricia was telling me, Greg, you might go to prison for the rest of your life if you don't make the right decisions. Right. And I'm like, I thought that was really odd that I'm paying this woman 50 grand and she's giving me that advice that, She's giving me like court appointed attorney advice. She's literally saying, you know, you got to really weigh all your options. I'm like, lady, I'm fighting. I don't know about you. I'm fighting. Like I didn't do this. And so, and so like, but in the whole time, man, now sitting a little bit more mature, less naive, a little bit more brave, this girl, man, she, um, she completely 
Patricia Cummings, man, she she veered the whole investigation around Jonathan McCarty and hoping that I would walk from trial instead of seeking the truth. And so when you do that and you don't go seek the truth, there's going to be consequences to that. So the consequence was me going to prison. And so when they told me like, hey, we're going to now throw five years at you. Let's give you the old Williamson County plea bargain, you know, rodeo show and let's see if he takes it so we can get you know we can uphold our 98 percent conviction rate that's how it is in williamson mm-hmm. county man there's i remember when i was i remember when i was in williamson county i was in the jail they were trying to give an 18 year old kid who made a a, um, a plate full of pot brownies life in prison and i'm like what and so that was for real and so um and so like i i, I thought it was the most ridiculous thing in the world man and I knew right then and there, I mean, even Joffrey Purrier in the in the doc, he says, well, you know, sometimes it's really hard to win one of these, you know, it's hard to win these type of cases. And when he said that statement, it showed you where his heart was, that winning at all costs was his job. It wasn't finding the truth. Clearly, we can see that from DAs, from detectives here in Williamson County. It's not about finding the truth. So, um, yeah, no, I knew that. I knew that they were. Um, they were scraping at the bottom of the barrel, man. Hey, Greg, isn't it true that didn't your mom sell her house to pay Patricia's fee? Yeah, yeah. We sold the house I grew up in so we could pay for a woman who was completely ineffective. Will you talk a little bit more about Patricia Cummings? And it, we get into it in the doc. Um, why? Um, you know, was there a time, I guess, that you realized? Was it th- those pieces of advice or was there a specific time where you realized... God damn, I don't I don't know if she's the right person. I don't know if she's really on my side here. Yeah, it was a point where it was a few months before trial started. At one point, man, I was so naive about lawyers. I didn't even know what a lawyer did. You know, what I mean, I didn't know how to get one. I, I thought, like, do you just crack open a phone book and just call, you know, Saul pretty much? And so uh don't call I, Saul. I, I, no, don't call Saul. But um, no, I, I I didn't know. Like I was I was pretty much recommended Patricia from Shama, right? Jonathan's mom, and I had no idea that they were friends. I had no idea she represented them in the past. Um, I just thought like, oh, I guess you know she knows a good attorney that can defend me, that can fight for me. And so we got with Patricia, and uh, you know, right when you walk into her office, and this is how naive I was. Why when I walk into her office, I, I see all these like plaques and like super lawyer this and U of H law and UT and, and all this stuff, right? And so I was like, okay, I got I got I got a girl that can fight for me. So um, but that wasn't the case, man. A few months going into my trial, I remember there's some rumor going around that Jonathan has some naked pictures of kids on his phone. Right. It, it's being passed around from from um, our little circle of mutual friends. And, um, Gabriel actually came to me with this. He's like, Hey, did you hear about Jonathan? Like so-and-so is saying that they saw pictures of naked kids on Jonathan's phone. I said, what do you talk? What? I said, well, we need to tell Patricia about this. Jonathan was living in that house. And so we go into Patricia with it. Uh, Gabriel's mom does and say, Hey, did you hear about this Jonathan thing? Right. And so she actually in Patricia's office, raises her hand up to Tracy and says, you know, Tracy, we're just not going to go there. Right. I'm trying to defend Greg. I'm trying to fight for Greg. 
And I thought that was really odd. And at that point, man, I thought something was fishy. And then the very next week, her own private investigator, AJ Kern, gets the same amount of treatment. AJ, we're not going to go there. I'm, fi- I'm, I'm, I'm hired by Greg and I'm fighting for Greg. And so I'm like, that's what fighting for me is, lady. I'm like, do the investigation. You're not. So the Cedar Park Police Department, they don't just have an obligation to give me due process. It's actually Patricia Cummings now has the obligation to do her own investigation to find the truth to defend me. So she didn't do her part. Yeah. Greg, I'm, I'm going to put you back in, in jail for a second. Uh, I hate to do that to yeah. you. You spent more time than you need to. But I think for me and for a lot of people out there, you know, the thought of a guy who is charged with this, we've all heard it. Your mom, you and your mom kind of danced around it before you all came, you both came to the same conclusion and you kind of let your mom in on it. I want to see if you open the doors a little further for us. When you're known as a, a child molester in prison, we all know that's considered you know, the worst thing. And a lot of times really bad things happen to those guys. Your mom basically said, she eventually said on the documentary, that was something she was very afraid for you. And you even, um, intimated that you had to, that you had, um, a dust up yourself. You had to defend yourself. You say, I want you to take us into what your thought was going in, how afraid you were about that very topic, how much you knew and and how much you expected, and then what you encountered, if you can get into some detail about what those encounters were like for you. Were you in protective custody at all? You know, things like that. Uh, Yeah, both. I, I, I received both. I was in general population. I was also in protective custody. And um, there were times where I had to defend myself. Um, There were times where people tried me. Um, I was, thank God. And by God's grace, I was never stabbed. I was never hurt badly. And, and, um, that just goes to show guys that when I, when the next thing I'm about to say is absolutely true. The life expectancy of a child molester in prison is about probably 40% compared to a murderer. They kill those guys They're, You're the scum of the earth. You are not even worth breathing air when you're in there. So, I think when I got in there, I think um, looking over my shoulder each and every day was absolutely real. Uh, right when I got in there and I got I got sent to the holiday unit, which is a transfer facility before you go to your like final destination unit. Um, it's in Huntsville. It's a it's like a they call it like a bus station. You know, it's where literally you go in, you do your diagnostics. They do a bunch of tests on you, psych tests, physical tests, blood tests. And um, you get put into a tank with a bunch of other people that are new into prison. Um, for me, I got put in protective custody where I was just in a, in a little five by nine cell by myself um, for months. And you get fed three times a day and you only get one hour out to exercise. And I did that for months until um, diagnostics was over. And I went to my final destination unit, which was the win unit. And um, the win unit, I was actually very blessed. And this is how I think God was in this whole thing, because I got put on the unit where it was considered a Cadillac unit, which is a Cadillac unit in terms is like lay back, you know, and, and don't get me wrong. Every unit has its own level of violence. Um, but I did not go to a gladiator unit. A gladiator unit is exactly what that word means. It's a bunch of young 18, 19, 20 year olds with fresh life sentences that have nothing to lose. So I thank God that I did not go to that unit because if I went to that unit, 
I probably would not, um, I probably would not be out. I mean, I, I would probably be exonerated, but I probably would have, would have defended myself in a way where I've had to um, do something that I never wanted to do. I never don't, I don't want to do. And there are people that take people's lives and they're defending themselves and they get the consequence of a murder. And so I thank God I was never put in that situation where I had to defend myself on that level. But there were times when I was at the wind unit and I was going to college and I was doing everything that I, I, I had to do to live a somewhat normal life. Um, I worked out, I played a lot of basketball. So I believe I received a lot of people's respect on the rec yard for, you know, playing basketball and playing touch football and, and uh, running track and stuff like that. I was kind of one of the faster guys on the unit. So I, 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 I developed a lot of respect within the inmates. And, uh, but a lot of people just didn't know who, what I was in there for. And I remember walking around and people were like, Hey man, what are you doing here? You don't, you don't look like you belong here. You know, I was like, well, I, I don't belong here. I'm trying to figure out why I'm here actually. And so kind of going through everything. Um, there were times where, um, people hated me, man. I mean, the Austin newspaper where something happened in my case would be passed around the unit. And there it is, you know, Greg Kelly is a child molester. He's at this unit. And then it, it, it rubbed people wrong, but it rubbed a lot of people were like, it just doesn't make sense. You know, it just doesn't make sense. Like you don't even, you don't act like one, you know, you don't. And I was like, you know, and, and to my head, I'm like, man, all I can tell you is I didn't do it. I'm, I'm fighting to get back home. And a lot of people respected that. A lot of people were like, you know what? I'm just going to give you the benefit of the doubt. Um, I know that there are people innocent in here, but there were times man, where I did have to defend myself because people want some, some people are completely that stupid. Um, um, were you, when you, and, and you touched on it a little bit, but like, you know, I think you always think about God, if, if I had to go to jail, what would my, if I had to go to prison, walk into gen pop, yeah. like, what would my, what would I do? You know, I'm, what I'm about to say, will probably show you how stupid I am. I feel like I'd go tattoo my face and like <laughs> just start like eating my own shit. I don't know. And like act like I was just lunatic, you know, but like when you could, which shows how long I'd last. That happens. That happens. <laughs> um, but no, that happens, you, brother. I mean, that there are, there are people like that. Did you meet somebody, you know, uh, that could kind of, I mean, for lack of a better term, take you under your wing. Did you have a cellmate? Did you have somebody that you either ingratiate yourself with or you ingratiate that kind of like you were able to rely on a little bit or was it literally just deer in headlights or posture? I mean, like what, what is that for somebody that's never walked into, you know, a, a prison before and, and certainly doesn't deserve to be there. So initially Initially, I, I walked in like that deer in headlights. You know, it's the most awkward situation in the whole world because you just don't know. I mean, you know of prison what you see on Netflix documentaries of like beyond scared straight of people going to come up to you and be like, what's up, son? You know, like that, that's real, but then it's not. So like when you go into prison, um, there's something called a hard check, which is they want to see how hard you are. They want to see if you're going to get out there, defend yourself because if you get labeled on your first day as a bitch, then for the rest of your time in prison, you will be treated like one. So I think you're not going to win it. I mean, there's going to, no matter like for me, like there, they had to put three people on me, you know, right on my first day of the hard check. And 
you know, I wasn't, they don't beat you up to a point where they beat the crap out of your face, but they beat your body up pretty bad to see how tough you are. Because when things pop off, they want to see if you're going to either, you know, sit down or if you're going to stand up and things do pop off where you're going to have to defend yourself. And they would like for you to choose a side when that happens. So like, thank God I wasn't put on the unit where racial, like being um, demanded to choose a side was a thing. Um, but at the same time, I'm, I was approached by, by white supremacists. Um, I was also approached by Latinos because people say, you know, I was really tan. They're like, what are you? You know, you're like a mixed breed. So, um, yeah, man, I mean, going into it, um, it was like a deer in headlights at first, you know, and then about a, a couple months in, I was the type of person where I'm just going to make the best out of my situation. I'm, you know, I'm going to make friends. Um, you should never do time alone. You know what I mean? You should, you know, talk to people. Um, have conversations, see if there's anybody that you can relate to. Um, and so going into it, man, I met a lot of really cool guys, man, that made a mistake when they're 18 years old, 19 years old, they're 45. Now, a lot of my friends were in their forties, you know, because I like to think that I, I carry myself in a mature manner and I'm not like the 19, 20 or 21 year olds in prison where I just want to, you know, smoke K2 and get tattoos all over myself and gamble. Um, that's what they do in there. That's what people my age. That's you, that's Eric. Yeah. My age do. Holy Eric. <laughs> and and that's all illegal, by the way. You can't do it. So um I I uh I, I never did any of that stuff, man. I, I wanted to educate myself. I wanted to continue with the path that I was I was on out in the world, but in a place where I was just trying to make the best out of my situation. So there was a guy, there was a lot of guys that I I made friends with. Hey, Pat, I want to ask you when you picked up, when did the documentary catch up in real time? At what point of the documentary did you hit real time and say, oh, okay, all this other stuff was the past? In other words, do you, do you understand what I'm talking about? Yeah. Because you were, you were in the middle of it, so you had, you had to get as much backstory as you could and a much, as many interviews as you could. When did we hit in real time where you were rolling along with it, waiting to see how it unfolded? It At was, what point of the doc? Yeah, it was really about the, the red hearing which was not far after we started shooting. So we had done an initial interview with uh, David and Tracy Anderson, with Aldo, with uh, Marlon, with Rosa, Greg's mom, and then uh, Keith Hampton and Greg. We did one interview with Greg prior to the Brit hearing and that kind of, I mean, we talked about everything. And at that point, all of that was how did he get to the point, you know, where he was at now. And then the Brit hearing was you know, real time from that point on. And then we did a second interview with Greg, which was right after the red hearing. Um, and then, yeah, everything else was, was all in real time. Did you lean on anything um, from a, from a movie making standpoint? Is there a documentary or a TV show or something having to do with jail or with the court systems that you went back and watched or that you studied, or maybe that you had in your background that had an impact on you when you were making this? Not that I can think of, honestly, no. We were just trying to make sure that we got everything. And and the access was was the biggest part. And then figuring out, to, you know, things were happening so quickly. Uh, being prepared and being ready and, and being agile with the story was, I mean, that consumed all of us. You know, my whole team was just that. Like, it, there wasn't a whole lot of discussion about stylistically, how are we going to necessarily do this? I mean, we, we shoot with reds, you know, we use cinema lenses and, you know, we, we try to make everything as, as 
cinematic as possible. Um, and we go over like, you know, looks and stuff like that. And when we do that, I'll pull images from multiple places and say, I like this, I like this, you know, but it wasn't like, Hey, everybody watch this documentary. We're going to try to emulate this. It was more of how can we be in the right position to capture this? Um, because it, it, I mean, it, that in itself was just like, you know, a, a Herculean effort mm-hmm. to try to make that happen because it was nothing, nothing was, a. Uh, Nothing was was pre-planned, that's for sure. Yeah, but I mean, you know, just from a cinematic point of view, the way you shot Haley, which I thought was really beautiful. Harley, Harley and Five? Um, is her name Harley or Haley? I'm Harley. sorry. Yeah, Harley. Harley. My apologies. Yeah. yeah. Um, but she's, is she in a church? It's not a church. It it's looks actually... kind of like there's stained glass windows. There is, yeah. Okay. But, mm-hmm. but she's alone on a chair in space a space and yep. there's just this really that 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 says so much about her story and feeling alone and just i i really i commend you with that decision because it really uh for a viewer it made a big difference and equally as much um with the juror um yeah and the and and you know not blurring a face or not just seeing a chest, but uh, you know there was also something kind of human, uh, human, but also I, I I don't know the right word, but almost. But I think not. it was more like shame. I think it was shame because like he's behind. I mean, he was behind. You know, I mean, it's like from from the backside, and he right was. On. I think uh, when I was watching, I was like, man, I, I felt for the guy. I empathize. I mean, this guy sent me away, but at the same time. I, uh, man, I just like, I wanted to give him a hug. You know what I mean? It's like, I have so much shame that he has so much shame for what he's done because he held out for so long, you know, and he got pressured. And I think he made that mistake where he's just living with it for the rest of his life. You're sending somebody to potentially die. I mean, let's be real. You talked about it. You're sending someone to potentially die. You have to die on that hill if you have conviction. And I and he had right. to have lived with a great deal of shame. And and I think we can bring it into the story now. You know, I, I, I know you're asking about this, too. I'm sure, Pat, I didn't ask you about this, but my listeners on the radio show when we interviewed you, they all brought it up. The district attorney ended up committing suicide. And we find that out at the at the postscript of, you know, production. Was did you follow up on that? If that had anything to do with feelings over this, or if that was something completely separate, we just don't know, and that's okay. That, that's the whole thing. I don't, there, there wouldn't have been anything to follow up on because we don't know. And it, Jana Duty had a lot of issues. Uh, there's no doubt about that. So I, we can't say with any level of certainty that it had anything to do with Greg's case. But you know, as Greg pointed to earlier, I mean, she was held in contempt and jailed twice as a district attorney, and and she was kind of run out of town you know, after all the issues that she had, uh, being DA and, you know, I called her multiple times, uh, trying to get her to talk. Uh, she hung up on me one time, you know, left multiple messages, but she was aware that we were doing this, uh, very clearly. And I, I had talked to the other prosecutors, uh, at great length. So she was clearly aware this was happening, but I can't say with any certainty that it had anything to do with Greg's case. I think another person that people who, are listening and watch this documentary would be interested in hearing about is Lindsay Armstrong. Um, can you give us a little bit of insight on Lindsay and Greg? Did you, did you ever have history with Lindsay? Did you know Lindsay? 
Um, is there anything that happened between you guys that would have driven her in this direction? Or is she just someone who had made up her mind? Lindsay, what I know of Lindsay is that she, she went to high school. She went to Leander. Um, she's Gabriel's um, sister's age. And I don't know what she specifically did, if she was involved in any extracurricular sports or anything like that. I just know that from a, from a lot of people that describe her, she was kind of like a mean girl. Uh, she was kind of mean to everybody and, and just kind of felt like she had a chip on her shoulder everywhere she went. And she's also a daughter to a woman who uh, continues to torment me and my family and persecutes me as a person who um, categorizes herself as a children's advocate. But really, um, from from like the first week of her getting involved in like an anti-Greg Kelly movement um, group, it turned in from advocating for these children into actual hate towards me uh, because of the amount of people that were trying to fight for me. And they, she, she, she saw that with a lens of people are really fighting and supporting a, a child molester. You know, and, and that's what she actually believes is that people literally rose up to to to, to fight for a child molester. Mm-hmm. There is no believing the evidence of my innocence with her um, and her mother. Um, and she still continues to this day, man, attacks my business, attacks me, says lies about me to try to persuade people from the truth in the documentary to what the really truth is of all these lies. She How does she attack your business? Go Go ahead, Pat. No, I was gonna say she was she was oh. critical from my perspective because they, locally there was there was two kind of warring factions with this the the fight for GK group that was saying no he's innocent but there was a very very loud victims advocacy group of people that were you know screaming from the hilltops no he's the devil you can't you know you can't let him out and the funny thing was all like the leaders of that group I reached out to all of them to try to get all of them to go on camera and none of them would. Uh, Lindsay, I met with Lindsay and her mom, who was one of the leaders of that group, like Greg was just saying, and Lindsay said, yeah, I'll do it. And I even, I even kind of shot back at her mom, like, how can you claim to be a victim's rights advocate if you're too afraid to go on camera and answer these questions or, you know, say it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but it wouldn't have been an accurate representation of, of the controversy without that group there that is saying, Hey, no matter what you have to believe the child. And if you don't, you're saying the child's a liar or you're going to uh, discourage other child victims from coming forward. And that was a constant presence in the story. And it's interesting to see how many people are like, what the hell does she have to do with any of it? I'm like, she doesn't. She's just very, very vocal. And that was going on the entire time. And, uh, you know, so I don't think it would have been an accurate depiction of what 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 happened in the story without that that angle. Yeah. It, it certainly didn't feel like that movement was as big because, like you said, you couldn't get you couldn't get them to talk. Yeah, uh, but she certainly represented it with a loud voice and an unwavering one at that. Well, and she and she, you know what? It's good to hear. I think the audience needs to hear when considering this that she says, no matter what the evidence is, no matter what the CCA says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, and that's something that he has to deal with every day because there are there's a lot of people that feel that way. Pat, were you, um, did you for two years, every Wednesday, shoot Greg or how did that work? Yeah. Yeah. That was, I mean, our whole process was right at like three years from start to finish. And Greg got out in August of 2017. 
And so we had until the, the judge didn't make her conclusions or findings of fact and conclusions of law until December of 2017. It, it would have had to have been January of 2018 that we started doing it or February, I think, of 2018. So, yeah, we did that from February 2018 until November of 2019. And it was every every Wednesday. And it was typically just me and Greg um, because I only lived about my house is about 15 minutes from where he was. And it, we just got into a routine. And, and oddly enough, that was when I think Greg and I really got to know each other and finally build a rapport and start having a relationship because it was impossible to do that when he was in jail. And even when we were shooting right after jail, there was always so many people around him. So that was kind of a, a forced moment with the two of us. And it became this routine where I would bring coffee and everybody else in the house would be asleep. And for about an hour, every Wednesday, we would just talk. So I find that maybe to be the most fascinating, just in terms of like relationship and like character, you know, if this were a scripted show, I would want to see that, I, you know, a, like as an actor, as a viewer, like that hour, because I guess only you can answer this, Pat, but Greg's fate is on the line, not yours. Every so, Wednesday. But I Every Wednesday morning. But I, I've got to imagine as this relationship strengthens and you're in this and you know what you know. What were Tuesday nights like? I mean, or or Wednesday mornings at 5 a.m. when you probably shot up going, oh, my God. It got heavier and heavier, obviously, as the as the time went on. Um, and I felt terrible for him. I mean, and I know he probably associated me with a really terrible exercise <laughs> of looking at his phone like that. And it just the, the lack of like... Uh, um, I mean, it, it just was so absurd that he would have to go on a website to find out his fate. And it was, look, you're either you're either finally exonerated or you're going to have to go back to prison for another 22 years. And to be sitting by yourself pretty much in a kitchen, look, checking your phone to do something that was that heavy was was it was tough. I mean, I felt terrible for him. And again, as as the football stuff started looking like a real possibility. It got even more difficult. And, you know, it, it was, it was really, really difficult. And uh, I got to yeah. say, one of the things that I thought was interesting as a marking of time was how Greg's hair changed. And Greg's got, I mean, yeah. his hair game is on point. So shout out to Greg's hair, but um, man, it's like the change stuff. Going? <laughs> yeah. Let me uh, <laughs> give him a shout. But it was it was crazy to see, you know, you create so much drama, Pat, with the score underneath of or the editor or however that process works out. But with the very first Wednesday that we're introduced to this process and Greg's got the phone and he's scrolling, it's like, holy shit, I can't believe I don't I, I honestly had to pause it. And I'm like, I don't think I can do this. Then I realized, yeah. holy crap, we're going to do this for well over a year, like a year and a half. And at one point, Greg, I started to think. Does Greg, when he doesn't see anything, is he secretly happy that he's that he has another week where he can like, yeah, just exhale Dude. a little bit? Was that ever the case, or did you were you only looking for the exoneration, the actual innocence? So, man, every morning, nine a.m. Pat, Pat knows. I mean, 
I talk to Pat when I'm in, you know, when I'm cool as a cucumber and we have conversations. We've had dinner before. And, but I mean, Pat can attest to this. Every Wednesday at nine, dude, I was on the edge. I mean, when I don't talk and I, I'm, I'm laser focused, you already know my anxiety level is like, is this, was last night the last dinner I'm ever going to have with my family? Is, was last night the last dinner I'm ever going to have with my mom alive? You know, I think that, because who knows, man, I don't know how long my mom's going to live. You know, and my dad, um, my dad died while, while I was going through all this. And sitting there every morning, man, if I could ever explain it and depict it for you guys, it's like playing Russian roulette with a gun. You don't know if there's a bullet in it or not. You know, somebody just go ahead and spins it, points it at you. And if you if you look at that list and you don't know if it's going to say relief granted or you don't know if you're going to be alone with a cameraman where you receive the worst news of being torn from your family again. Greg, what was you know? your dad? And, what was your dad like? Yeah. I, we, we learned about your mom. I'm really curious. You've mentioned your dad twice. We found out during the documentary that he passed away. Just tell us about your dad. What was he like? What was he like for you and to you? Man, my dad was, I got to say, my dad was a funny character. I mean, my dad had the jokes. He, uh, my dad was a great dad when it came to supporting athletes. He supported his sons. He, we know, and we know, remember my dad from McDonald's coffee. He used to get every morning and go and watch us um, play, eating a McGriddle um, on the fence line. You know what I mean? Like he was there every practice, every football game. Even after he had a stroke, he had he did his very best to wheel himself up in a wheelchair and watch me play my junior year. Um, and he 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 wasn't afraid to tell everybody he knew and everybody that walked past him that that's my son playing ball right there. So my dad was not the perfect man. I mean, my dad had a little bit of bipolar in him. Um, he had a little bit of anger problems. But at the same time, I think my dad was trying to make the very best out of the situation he had as being a supportive father. And um, so my dad, he, yeah, I mean, he, he meant the world to me. And I think now that he's gone, I just, man, I wish that I spent more time with him. I wish that this never happened to me so I could spend these last, the last moments. And, I, and I, I thank God that I was released on bond, right, waiting for the exoneration to be by his bedside when he took his last breath. Yeah. Thank you for, for sharing that. I think like as a father and somebody who's close to their dad, um, you know, it's hard to put that into perspective and, and I appreciate yeah. that. Um, Rosa is an absolutely amazing woman. Absolutely. Yeah. Don't even, don't even ask me about my mom. Cause I could be here all day. Explaining <laughs> who she is. She's uh, my mom, my mom's a, my mom's an angel, man. My mom's a saint. She, uh, you know, my mom, she's got so much forgiveness in her heart. She's got so much faith and so much grace, so much hope. Uh, she is literally the epitome of a praying mother. You know, she, she, so funny story. I just started a small business and this is the type of mom she is. I hired my mom to stain my wood, right? Cause I, I build cornholes and ax boards, but I hired her just for staining. And so she stains and she does a great job at it. But when my brothers come and help me, man, my mom goes from staining wood into the kitchen to cook us all food. So she flips into like a maternal mode to cook us food and does no work. So um, <laughs> that's the type of mom she is, man. So she's a phenomenal mother. 
Did you say you so uh, like cornhole, like the game cornhole? Yeah, yeah. So I, I build uh, freestanding axe throwing boards. The funny story how it all started. My bachelor's party back in January. We went axe throwing. First time I ever done it. Um, I, I built one for my backyard when the pandemic hit. And I, I went to Home Depot, built a freestanding eight foot tall axe throwing board, and and uh, posted about it. Posted me throwing and hitting bullseyes and. Next thing you know, people hit me up about, hey, can you build me one? I want one of these for my backyard. I Googled it, and it's not a thing. Nobody builds these things. So I built I built um, them one, and they posted about it. And next thing you know, people are flooding my inbox. Hey, I want one for my ranch. I want one for my land. And I was like, well, I'm going to make a business out of this. I'm going to quit my, my personal training job and see if I can make some money and make ends meet with this. So I built my own little shop. Now, now I can probably say last – Last week, I, I signed a, a lease for a 2,000 square foot warehouse where we build these axe throwing boards and cornhole customized cornhole sets too. So Congrats. yeah, I love it, man. And thank you, man. And here's a crazy little story. My I learned all these skills on how to work with my hands and how to weld and how to do carpentry work and all that in prison. So talk about making the best out of a shitty situation. Is when I was in there, I got to I got to really um, learn how to. To, to those skills, man. And so uh, it's funny how now that I, I, I receive an income for it. Dude, congratulations. That's, that's awesome. I'm, I'm, uh, thank you. I might be in the market for a cornhole set. So, uh, I know where my kids, uh, I mean, I need extra bean bags cause they pretty much end up just throwing them at each other's heads. But, uh, <laughs> right. but that, but that being said, I've been known to, uh, I've been known to toss a bean bag. So uh, I might I might hit you up for that. What about an axe? Uh, oh, you're not gonna axe, fling an axe around? I've got a seven and a five year old boy in my house. Oh uh, no, I never mind. Yeah, we are not ready for the axe board. Yeah, we are not ready for the axe board. Another thing you you got you're good at your hands is is football. Um, so uh, you know I we talked a little bit yesterday, and um, I know this is this is a dream of yours and. Um, I can only speak to, you know, I, I probably similar to you realized my dream when I was, you know, in middle high school, about the same age. And I fortunately didn't have it ripped out from under me. Um, but I was able to follow that dream and continue on. And I know that yours was ripped out from under you. Um, and so now you're trying to put the pieces back together and, and grind. So Will you tell us a little bit about what you're doing and how you're staying in shape and uh, what's going on on the football side of things? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so when I got out of prison, I knew immediately that I wanted to go and, and kind of rekindle and salvage whatever was left in football. I mean, I got torn away from that sport for, um, you know, man, it's, I'm going on. I haven't played down to football, man, in like seven years. So like man, I got torn away for years from it, man. And it's one of those things where when something unjustly gets stripped from you, it's like, man, you want to just do everything you possibly can to fight to get that back. And so when I got out, you'll see, you saw that Pat followed me on it one of these days after I got introduced to Jeremy Hills, who's an elite performance coach that trains a lot of the UT alum. He gave me the opportunity of lifetime to train with some of these NFL guys that he trains. And I got to connect with Earl Thomas, Kenny Vaccaro, Alex Okafor, Quandre Diggs, just a, a big plethora of n- names that you you hear in the NFL nowadays as ballers. And so 
kind of just getting under these guys' wings and getting caught up by them and grinding right next to them, um, it punched me in the gut a lot, dude. I mean, it, it there's a reason why these guys get paid the big bucks. And just like noticing that they are hard workers and they're so talented made me even more want to pursue football again, um, especially when I started to hang with them a little bit. So whenever, when and then they, and then they gave me their respect, you know, when they started posting pictures um, of me with them on their own personal page, I was like, okay, I'm a, I'm a friend. They're my friends now. So I was like, okay, cool. So we, uh, we, we grind a little bit more and I've been waiting for an opportunity, man. Now that I'm exonerated, I'm at UT. I applied, I got in through my grades this past spring and this is all at the same time where I tried out this past February for the, for the football team. And this was the goal since day one, man, after I got out, even in the doc, I think when I was talking about how grateful I would be to run out of the tunnel as a longhorn, he gets to go and pad up and play. That was like, I don't know. That was like maybe a year after I got out, we were just, you know, sitting in, in one of our, in the game room here at this house. And we, uh, and I was just like, football was way, way, way off into the, into the sunset, man. And it's like, you could not, I could not see it, you know, but I trusted the process of just grinding each and every day, hopefully getting closer to the day where football is going to be just right in front of my nose. And I feel like right now football is right in front of my nose. So I've been grinding so hard for it. I'm waiting and I'm praying for an opportunity, man, for some school, if it's not UT, I would love, I would love it to be UT cause I'm there. But if some school gives me the opportunity to pad up and play again, I'd be very grateful. Hey, Pat, you're, you're a sports fan. I'm curious if, um, you know, the best sports doc going to me is, is hard knocks. I absolutely love hard knocks. I think it's in, incredibly well done. There's a shot that you have where it's at university of Texas and Greg is working out and you've got the longhorn. I don't know. You've got some long, I'm trying to recall what the longhorn image is in the back, but it's university of Texas. We know this is his dream. We see yep. him working out. And all of a sudden you have that hard knocks type of where he steps into the image. You've got the, you've got the, it's, it's clearly focused on the longhorn image. And then Greg steps into it as he's in the middle of a workout. And then you pull back the focus on him or your cameraman does. What was that shot like? Did you, did you set that shot up? Was that something that you found as a little treasure, as a treasure hunt in the editing process? How did that come about? I was standing over my cameraman's shoulder and, and I think he was, I think the initial framing of that shot was just the longhorn thing in the background and Greg walked into it uh, accidentally, not on purpose. And when we saw it, we did the same thing. We're like, Oh, that's amazing. And he kept walking back and forth. And I think at one point I was like, okay, Greg, next time you do that, just, just hold on for, hold on for a second before you start running again. You know, uh, but we we did it a couple of times because it just kept happening naturally. But yeah, it was an amazing shot. Um, and and I know you got the background because of your work on draft days. You've got the work uh, on pro days, and you understand the process. Your mockumentary that you did with me, but um, you talk to real NFL players, and you've seen the process of them getting ready. Did you yeah. get to talk to them about Greg at all? Or did those guys from University of Texas have any comments about him to you? I, I did. Yeah. I mean, we interviewed Jeremy Hills and we talked to uh, uh, MJ, I think was was uh, uh, he was Jason um, Witten's backup tight end for the Cowboys that Greg is working out with the guys monsters like six, eight or something like that. 
and and Greg and him are sitting there with 140 pound dumbbells, uh, <laughs> which was ridiculous. And then uh, I spoke to Kenny Vaccaro too off camera and just said, "Hey, tell me honestly, what what are your thoughts?" And he said, "I the first time I saw him, I thought he was an NFL player. I, I didn't know who he was or what team he played for, but I thought he was an NFL player." So everybody we spoke to was like, no, 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 he's, he's legit. Like he's, he's hanging with us and the stuff they were doing was just crazy. It was crazy to watch. And it was crazy to see again, like, you know, the first time I met Greg, he's in prison. And and then, you know, the day that he gets out on bond, that was such a crazy day where he goes from prison to then a house to then wakeboarding uh, uh, out there to watching himself get released and it was just, it was wild. The whole journey of the story was just so wild to but, see him from where he was to where he is now. I want to make sure that people know this, though, who haven't seen the documentary, this incredible journey where you're talking to Kenny Vaccaro, who's like, boy, he looks like an NFL player to me. And he's yeah. 140 pound dumbbells. And Greg's in this amazing shot with University of Texas in the background. But guess what? Through all this timing, every fucking Wednesday could be the day that all of that vanishes and he goes back to prison and that's in the documentary what you'll find is that that was like a weight that hangs on our shoulders as viewers it must have been staggering i would assume for you greg but and and for you as well pat because now you've got now you've got a personal association with greg that's more than just documentarian yeah yeah but i mean again it was it was interesting the way that we normally build a rapport with somebody before you start shooting and this was a way different experience for me but it was the Wednesdays while as much as they did suck again like I am kind of grateful for them through this process that that's how Greg and I really got to know each other well I think and and spend a lot of time together and it was uh look everything we have in the documentary is is because Greg gave us the access and said yes which you just don't see moments like that in normal documentaries. You don't, you don't see somebody get released from prison and get into a car that's mic'd up with a camera guy there. And you catch literally his first, the first time it hits him that he's out and breaks down, you know, to the conversations that we have to me asking him like, dude, why aren't you running? Why aren't you bouncing? Like, why do you, what makes you think that they're going to do the right thing the second time? You know, all of these moments. And I, I have to just I, I cannot commend Greg enough for his willingness to put all of this on camera to answer these unbelievably difficult questions and to be as to do it all with a level of grace and dignity that was unbelievably uh, touching and, and inspiring to me, because I've told Greg this numerous times, but I certainly would have never handled myself you know, half as, as, as well as he did in this whole thing. So it, you know, the whole thing is, it, it was an emotional process. And my, my experience is obviously nothing compared to what Greg did, but, you know, even him allowing us on those Wednesdays, that was probably compounding the stress for him, which is why, you know, at the end, we, I felt it was necessary for us to kind of expose our own role in this, for how challenging it was for Greg and how weird this whole process can be that reminding the audience at every step along the way, there were, there were cameras and, and people there watching this, which is incredibly difficult. And he did a, he did an unbelievable job at handling all of it. Yeah. I, I, I thank you too, Greg, because it gives us as viewers a chance to see that 
you know, to, and that's, that's as raw and real as it gets those moments. Um, Pat, I don't know. I cried on the Wednesday that you got the news and, uh, I don't know how you didn't, Pat. Like, I don't, like, I was ready, like, I was so drawn in, but I also, going back to think about it, I was like, how did that camera not just start jumping up and down that Pat is holding? It wasn't me. It wasn't me. No, that it wasn't you. Yeah. No, that's the irony of this entire thing. No okay? way. So like, you were there every Wednesday, yeah. but not that Wednesday? Exactly. Oh, exactly. And he, he was scared. He was scared that was going to happen. He was like, what the <laughs> fuck? He was like, he was like, it was his. It was his cousin, man, who yeah. got the money shot. Yeah, your we had cousin. Was he just cousin. like, did like, you find him on Craigslist? Your cousin? You just <laughs> hand your cousin a fucking camera for this Wednesday? Come well, on, no, man. handed him, handed him the torch, man. He handed his cousin yeah. the torch to finish the race. Oh, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Who's your cousin, Jake Bryden? Yeah. <laughs> no, my cousin. Who's your cousin? My cousin is in the business. He's a cameraman okay. in the business, and he. He lived in he lives in New York. So when Greg went up to New York, when Gabriel got into dance school, I was there. I think the first three or four weeks, maybe that you guys were there, and uh, and I would bring him with me so he could get a sense of what we're doing, and so that him and Greg would be comfortable around each other. Right. Um, so there was a transitional period there, and then he did. I think two or maybe three, and the last one, I was I was on vacation when it happened, and I, I couldn't have been further away from. Greg, at that point, I was in Hawaii on vacation uh, when my phone started blowing up. I think it was like four or five in the morning at, at that time. So, yeah. Wow. Wow. That's that's unbelievable. That's that's a great little tidbit. I uh, yeah. And I, I'm sure the night before you were like, tomorrow's going to be the day. I'm in you just know Hawaii it is. And tomorrow's going to be the day. There's uh, many conversations, man, where Pat, where Pat and I were like, I feel like today, this week's the week. And that started on yeah. like week 15. And then like yeah. it actually happened on week 85. <laughs> week 85. Yeah. Hey, from like, this is going to be the week. This is going to be the week. And then somewhere around week 35, you're like just numb to the whole thing. And then yeah. eventually it just, it, it comes back around. Yeah. Hey, I know this is, so let me go off script for a second. And I want to ask you a question, Eric. So. If Gabri, um, no, I like Greg's wife more than griddles. If that's what you're gonna, ask. no, I'm not gonna ask because, oh, no, okay. well, I like McGriddles better, but that's fine. Okay. And with sausage, okay. yeah, yeah, okay. with sausage, but right. um, yeah, because who doesn't like syrup infused pancakes with cheese <laughs> right. and either your choice of a bacon or, or a sausage, of course. Um, yep. okay, so Gabri is, is the wife of Greg Kelly, yep. Um, she gives new meaning to the phrase ride or die. Absolutely. Yes. Oh if Gabriel, if Gabriel is a ten, what is Katie your wife? What would you like? Wh- if Gabriel's a ten for the ride or die wife, where would you put your wife? And I ask first, so I don't have to answer. I'm going to invoke the fifth, so I'm not going <laughs> to. Don't get you. Don't get in trouble, Eric. Don't get in trouble, bro. <laughs> no, I I I know through, I know through some things that have happened in my life that that Katie's a ride or die. She is okay. a true true ride or die now let me preface that that's 10 years into marriage now when if it was like pre-marriage dating and i was like yo i'm gonna slip off to prison for that's what i'm saying dude that's that's a a different different level yeah that's a different level gabriel deserves a statue uh uh, uh, literally the rider like in the dictionary under ride or die there should be a picture of gabriel because 
My wife at that point, not so much. I'll give her a, I'll give her above high school sweethearts. Like, Oh, I'm out, Eric. Sorry. Yeah. Not sticking around for this. Six and a half, seven. Um, no, it's, Gabri's Gabri's an absolute champion. I'd love to hear a little bit about what she's up to right now and 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 uh where you guys are. Absolutely. At. Yeah, um no man, if I could tell if I could say anything about Gabri, my wife, um I think going into this, she um she loved me every step of the way, man. I mean, we we grew a love for each other going into high school and it kind of worked out perfectly because I was busy trying to make it as an athlete and she was busy trying to make it as a dancer and she made it and she always gives me hell about how she made it to the NFL before me because she she's an LA she was an LA Chargers cheerleader right so oh, wow. I, she always gives me yeah she was an LS, LA Chargers cheerleader for a year actually the year that I got released she um she actually hopped on a flight um, and made it to the Williamson County Jail and literally flew in two hours before I got released from Williamson County Jail from L.A. So uh, she and prior to that, too, like while I was in prison. So so it, it, it would be it would be enough if Gabriel was like in Leander doing her own thing and sticking by me. But she was in L.A. while I was in prison doing the commercial dance world of trying to book gigs, meeting high class celebrity males with money and all this and that people that were sweet talking her because she's absolutely stunning so to be able to just say no to all that and stick by some dude who's going through absolute hell for something he didn't do in prison here in Huntsville Texas just speaks volume of what type of woman she is man where she speaks volume to how she was raised by her her mom and dad you know, by, by a Christian household, by, by a dad who taught them morals and values before trying to look pretty and, and get guys attention and stuff like that. So I think, I think Gabri is a class act definition of a woman. Um, and so like sitting now married to her, um, are we absolutely perfect? No. I mean, we, we get in arguments and we, we, we share the, the couple struggles and the marriage struggles, but at the same time, Looking back at it now, I think all the crap that we went through and the biggest battle we ever had to do together as a, as a, as a team, as a couple, there is not a roadblock out there that we can't plow through. So, dude, we always get into these little arguments and I'm like, at least I'm not locked up. And so and she's like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> well, not only, not only is she like totally ride or die, but she was like her, she was an investigator as well. I mean, she was really no, she, at one point, at one point, she wanted to become a PI because she actually tag teamed uh, with the PI that we we hired during this whole process to prove my innocence. She actually worked with him for free and got m- the majority of the evidence that proved my innocence. Wow! So because she she's a cute little blonde man, of course you're gonna trust her. So she has the perfect the per- nobody sees it coming, man. So she uh, she's phenomenal. Greg, you got to go big on birthdays, man. Forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, she's a she's an act. She so she's quality time and she's an act of service type of girl. So she uh, so you know what I do, man. I just I make the the house smell good and I, I do the dishes and I, I prepare a really nice dinner and maybe take her out to to uh, True Lux. Actually, Pat got me for our he got me a, a gift certificate. We went out to True Lux, had a big old lobster. We had a great time. Nice, but she. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I try my very best to make sure that she's 
she's uh, satisfied in every way, man. She deserves it. She's a wonderful don't, woman. Don't sleep on the stone crabs too. When it's stone crab season, make sure you right. uh, check That's in right, on the stone right. crab and the mustard sauce. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, what do we? I'm I am a, you know, I sit here and I watch this and and I just get angry, you know, and I'm not I'm not in your position, um, but what do we do? Like, what do we do? How do we, I know that's a big question and a broad question, but, but to both of you guys, like the system is broken. Um, right. We've got electric officials who care more about reelectability than they do justice. Um, we've got detectives and DAs who uh, yeah. care more about their record than they do about doing the right thing. What do, what do we do? What what is it? Do you do you even have thoughts about what we do and how we do better? Yeah, I think we start with holding the people accountable, man. That did this to me because if you see at the end of the documentary uh, when the credits were happening, um, it's completely backwards, man. Instead of these people being held responsible for their actions, they get promoted. To me, to me, that is disgusting, especially the person that went to prison for something he didn't do. Just in the same way that they tried to hold me accountable for this crime, I think it's now that they be held accountable for falsely accusing me and wrongfully convicting me. But that's not what we have here, actually. The, the, the people that received this information in 2017, the Cedar Park City Council, they had the opportunity to hold these people accountable. But unfortunately, we have a mayor and a city manager here that is more run about political is more run by they they're more driven by political pressure and scratching each other's back rather than holding the person who did something wrong in their community accountable. So what happened was is they they got this information and instead of looking at the facts and the, the court documents about my innocence, they choose to hear it from the pig's mouth himself, which is Chief Mannix. They choose to only believe everything he's telling them because clearly in the Cedar Park City Council meeting after that private investigation, that independent investigation, clearly you can just see them high-fiving each other saying, hey man, I know that you're, you're, you're doing a great job with our police department. I have no doubt that you're the guy for the job. So clearly you see where they stand. So what happened was is that they swept everything under the rug, hoping that Greg Kelly would go away. But no, we didn't go away. You know, the truth prevailed. And we're going to hold you guys accountable now. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Chris Daly, it took a, a worldwide documentary. I mean, worldwide, because this has hit other countries on different networks. But it took a worldwide documentary, man, for these guys, for Chris Daly, not to get fired, but to resign, to quit. And it took it took a worldwide documentary. Um, and and it's, it's so crazy because the chief of police retired, honorably retired a few months ago, several months ago from the Cedar Park Police Department saying that he had cancer and he's, he's traveling around the U.S. in his RV and all the fishes around the U.S. should be scared because he's going fishing. And and now he, a couple of weeks ago, he tried becoming the chief of the city of Burnett, which is the city right next door to uh, Austin. And we, we gathered up the troops. We went over there and we're like, we're not going to have it. Now, everybody in the city of Burnett should be absolutely scared to have that guy as your chief. If he did that to me, he did it in Cedar Park, he's going to do it there. And so 
man, everybody rallied and, and we, he didn't, he, he didn't show up to work. He decided not to take the job. And then Joffrey Purrier becomes a judge. Patricia Cummings becomes the head of the integrity, uh, the conviction integrity unit of Philadelphia. How does that even happen? Right. And then, and then dude, I mean, it's so backwards. So if they're not going to hold themselves accountable, then I will. And that's, that's what, that's what we're doing here with this lawsuit that I filed. Before before we end up going, a couple of things I want to bring up just very, very quickly. Shout out to Sean Dick, the the yes. incoming district yes. attorney who had the um the balls and the and I think the integrity to do what was right. And and he came off that way. He didn't come off as being what I thought was the strangest thing. I had to call my friend who's an assistant DA and I said, I'm watching this doc, and this is very strange because they are literally challenging the police officers they are literally working for the defense basically i mean the prosecutor side the da they knew that it was not they knew that it needed to be reopened so they're working in your favor uh they're not working in your favor they're working in the truth's favor and the fairness and right. and the adjust trials favor so shout out to him i thought that was incredible and also pat um for you bringing in those experts and i'm sure it had to happen but I was really schooled on how lie detector tests are not as fail safe as everyone. Because I think there's just a belief that lie detector, well, lie detector tests are probably 99.9% true. Yeah. That that was brought up. And then also, and this is the most important part of the documentary to me, one of the most important parts is how children, um, how through suggestion and through just basically time elapsing and seeds planted, how their realities change extraordinarily quickly and how that can be detrimental to someone like Greg who's on trial. Yeah, it was, it was really important. Again, it, it came back to answering the question, if, if Greg is innocent, then why, why would this kid say this and what happened? And very quickly, when you start looking at what went on in the child advocacy videos, uh, the forensic interviews of these children, there's, there's huge red flags in that. And, and speaking with Dr. Kamala London, who's world renowned, uh, to the University of, of Toledo, she's doing unbelievable research. And uh, yeah, it was really, really important to explain that to the audience. And then we, you know, we show those actual experiments where you see what actually happened to the kid. And then you see the answers that they give. And if you didn't see what happened, you would believe what that kid is saying. They're incredibly convincing. So it's, it's, it was, that was crucial to show that. And, uh, you know, it, it, at so many different points of the story, guys, I just want to say this, like it, 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 the story, yes, it's Greg's story. It's about Greg, but it very quickly becomes way bigger than Greg and goes into the criminal justice system, into child psychology, how kids are interviewed, how investigations are done, how cases are prosecuted, the entire appellate process of this. And the other part, you know, kind of piggybacking on the praise that Gabriel got, I think is Harley. Um, because for me, this very quickly became a story of, okay, well, what happens when you put the wrong guy in prison? That necessarily means the right guy is out. And, and what can that person then do? And there's so many victims in the story beyond the, the child, beyond Greg. And Harley was one of those. And her story and the fact that she came forward and said what she said and, and put her face out there, put her name out there. Um, it was unbelievably uh, courageous on her part. And that was such a big part of the documentary for me 
was to show the audience like, look, this, there's a ripple effect that happens when this goes wrong that touches way more than one person, way more than one person's family um, and, and can touch many people in your community and in other communities. So um, all of these things are difficult to address. Um, but I think, you know, to Greg's point, it would be better if if uh, it didn't take a documentary for people to do the right thing. You know, they should have done it before when nobody was really paying attention and there wasn't a national spotlight on them. But unfortunately, time and time again, that's that's not the way things work out. Well, that's true. And and, um, you know, that that says a lot about you, Pat. And and uh, if Jake was one angel in Greg's life, you were certainly another because this story needs to be told. But but hold on. The story needs to be told. And, And albeit you were you were behind a camera just shooting what happened. I think that in order for there to be change in the justice system, which not only serves Greg, but serves everybody, um, these stories need to be told. And that's the only way they're going to get told. Um, And, you know, we we have to be better about that. You know, we got to be better about standing up and and having a voice. And, I'm you know, I'm glad that Greg and you know, the community are doing that down there. And and I'm glad that people like you are, you know, willing to take years uh, to tell this story, because I think it's really important. And, and I, I have a real problem with the way things are run. But I, I'm glad Lance brought up Sean Dick, because um, for for all the real piece of shits out there uh, in the in the system, there's really good people in the system. And we need more of them. Sean Dick seems seems like one of the good guys and and he he certainly you know showed that in your documentary and you know I just I hope that uh we we can start to find a way to find more good guys in, in that process and and get rid of some of the bad guys I think it's a I think it's a it's going to take a long time but I, Look, I, I think end, that if we could do it it's important At the end of this story Williamson County is one of the only people that actually they did the right thing Yes you know, the authorities in Williamson yeah. County they kind of start off as the villains in the story. And at the end of it, you, you have different people that are in there. You have different judges that have been elected, the DA, the people that Sean Dick brought in, and they did the hard thing. The easy thing would be, this had nothing to do with me. This is my predecessor. I'm not going to open up Pandora's box of all these cases that may have been mismanaged here. I'm not going to do it. To his credit, he did it. And he, he assembled a, a really, really strong team. And it is important to point out that there are good things that are happening in the system and that there are good defense attorneys like Keith Hampton and, and great DAs and, and you know, uh, uh, great judges. There, there are there, and there's good cops. There's good detectives. You just didn't Absolutely. see you just didn't see a whole lot of them in this in this uh, in this story. And, uh, you know, one, one thing that's interesting is uh, when you when you see the, uh, the the report that Cedar Park did their audit. Uh, it kind of goes by quickly, but you have this guy that came in there and said, look, they're, they're detectives. There's seven or eight detectives. They're handling a 1600 caseload every year, which is a higher ratio than he said the detectives in Chicago have. So if you have a situation like that, you have to expect massive mistakes to happen because they, they don't have the time. They don't have the time. There was zero investigation done in Greg's case. Zero. They didn't even go to the scene of the crime. You know, they didn't interview any of the any of the people that lived in the house. They didn't get a list of people that were in the house. You know, it was it was a a absolutely abhorrent example of an investigation 
for a very, very serious crime. And if a police department is dealing with 1,600 cases and seven to eight detectives doing it, you're going to have a hell of a lot more of these circumstances. Yeah, I, but that's but but again, like I can't that can't be an excuse. It just can't. Not when somebody's life's on the line. You know, uh, when you have when you have public defenders, it, it, you know, that are having four and five hundred open cases that they're working on, they can't possibly give that amount of time, the amount of time needed to their defendants. But again systemically that just that that can't be an excuse you know that that they we just have to find a way to do better um you know well, but, but community involvement pays off as you can see in this. we've seen that in this and i think that's an that's an important thing to highlight in this which you do and again like the town is a great character in this um greg you feel like you want to jump in here yeah absolutely guys you know i think the moral of the story here with my story is um, things need to change when it comes to police, when it comes to DAs. Um, you know, one thing that really struck me hard with uh, DA Sean Dick was his line in the doc where he said, you know, if somebody came to me, I, I don't know if it's quote for quote, but if somebody came to me showing me that our system made a mistake, why wouldn't I be open to listening to what they have to say? Why wouldn't I? Right. And so I think that speaks volumes of who he is is when he actually sat down with Keith Hampton, whole, heard everything that that um, Keith had to say, and then make the decision to reopen my case. That was the first um, step into real change. And I think it takes a situation like that to see a DA's true colors. I, I think, you know, DA's can talk the talk and sound really cool and, and you know, during campaign time. And but man, when it comes to actually stepping out and doing the right thing, I think Sean passed with flying colors. I think Sean is a man of integrity. I think Sean listens to his heart more than political pressure. I think he's not in it to win. I think he's in, the, in it to literally be the guy who holds justice up in Williamson County. And so, um, you know, the moral of my story here, guys, is that with a whole lot of faith, a whole lot of fight, and a whole lot of believing in the right thing to do. Um, you're not just another statistic because, you know, there are so many other guys out there like me, man, in prison that lost hope, that are in there, that didn't have the support that I had from perfect strangers. So, like, what I mean by that is I'm very blessed and very fortunate that I got to have that support, that people that loved me but also didn't know me challenged the justice system challenge them because that's what you need to do. You need to continue to challenge the people that have such high power, keep them in check, or they're going to run with that power and, and feel like they could do whatever they want. And that's what happened here. This detective with a badge and a gun who personally, to me, he doesn't even deserve to flip pancakes at IHOP. That's how incompetent I believe he is. He, he has a badge. He has a gun. He doesn't do anything with it other than target people. And hoping that he can, and, and it shows you what his motivation was. The very next day after I got sent to prison, he got promoted to sergeant over 10 different detectives. And now, apparently, since the, the chief wanted to make things right in this whole process when I was in prison, he beca he still became sergeant, but he's a sergeant over the patrols now. Oh, he's fired. or he quit now, but he was, he got demoted to patrol. So, like, just to keep him around. So, it just goes to show me, it shows you everybody, man, that unless we have real change and people stand up and fight, um, it's not going to change, man. Not well, 
the world is is full of cynics and cynical people, and we can all be very cynical. But you know, watching right. this documentary, it it feels at times that you're an impossible optimist, which doesn't make sense all the way through what you've been through, but almost an impossible optimist. And I hope you stay that way. You're still very young. You still got a lot of life ahead of you. And I and I certainly hope you get your chance in football. But like you said, you know, I talk to a lot of people in, in football and I talk to general managers and I talk to people who do it at the highest level. And the thing that they hold, the the thing they value right there behind the physical ability is mental toughness, is character and is ability to overcome adversity. And that's something that you've shown in spades. And we appreciate you allowing that to be shown and, and, and being so open with doing these interviews. And Pat, I certainly appreciate, and I know Eric does as well, your storytelling, the way that you did it. And then the subject matter, giving it the, um, uh, giving it the, the scope that it deserves because it is so much bigger than just Greg Kelly. So I'm, yeah. I'm glad that we were able to have you guys on the show. We're, I'm glad that you both were, are doing great work, both both of you, and I'm glad you were able to join us here on Off Script. Pat, Greg, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And, and Greg, you deserve everything coming your way, man, and I have no doubt, uh, like Lance said, it'll come in spades. So. Thank you so much for having us, guys. Oh, man, there's just so much to digest in that podcast. I need to go for a run. Uh, But before I do, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Blackland Distillery out of Fort Worth, making absolutely beautiful spirits, bourbon, rye, vodka, gin. See them online, blacklandfw.com, blacklandfw.com. Check out their uh, Facebook or Instagram page. Blackland Distillery, FW. Um, Thank you so much for being a friend of the program. Tony Moles for handling all our artwork. That's uh, Tony Moles over at Anthem Agency, A-N-T-H-M Agency.com. You can also check him out on Instagram, Anthem Agency. And uh, our music is by Josh Cook, herelieshoe.com. See you next week.